Hey piddle piddle, hey piddle piddle piddle, hey piddle piddle, yo ho ho, ho ho Christmas, two fifty podcast, hey piddle piddle piddle, yo. Ho ho ho, hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Hello. And we have a special guest, Renock McGregor. How's it going? How are things? And so it is Christmas again, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, Happy that's Christmas. why we said ho oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I was going to ask. <laughs> that was the first question we had going in there. Yes, no. It's I... totally not September. <laughs> yeah, no. No. Jeez, no. Christmas is getting closer oh, every, the... every year. I almost forgot that today was Christmas Day. Yeah. I looked out the window this morning and I said, uh, boy, what day is it? <laughs> And he said, actually, it is the 8th of September. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it is it is Christmas. This is our, our Christmas special. Um, and thank you very much for, for joining us, Renuk. It's very good to be here. All right. So what we do every Christmas is we have a discussion and we try and pick a movie that kind of speaks to the holiday, the spirit of the holiday, maybe set around the holiday. And in, in recent years, we've covered movies for this slot that include things like It's a Wonderful Life, Die Hard, to pick an example, even L.A. Confidential last year. And this year, we decided that what we do is we talk about Billy Wilder's 1960 classic, The Apartment. That's right. That's what we decided. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so just to, just to give a bit of an, an introduction in terms of this, The Apartment is perhaps an interesting film to discuss in this context because I don't think many people think of it as a particularly Christmassy sort of film. It was released in June in 1960. It was filmed in late 1959. Uh, but it is set in and around Christmas. But guys, do you remember the first time that you saw The Apartment? God, I actually can't seem to picture it at all. I remember it being somewhere in my teens. And Some Like It Hot was always my Christmas movie for years. Like Even though it's not essentially a Christmas movie, it was just you watching a movie that just made you smile it was sort of like you know it felt like a warm hot chocolate of a hug kind of movie so i think the apartment just followed in around that time i actually can't place it at all or you know usually i can place films with who i might have been going out with or something but uh no i can't i can't seem to place it at all um, and andrew do you remember the first time you saw i remember it like it was yesterday darren <laughs> Uh, was it in fact yesterday? <laughs> no, it was back in September. <laughs> but um, so you, you, had, you had never seen it before recording for this podcast? No, no, I had never oh, seen okay. it. Wow. This, so this is, uh, this is cool. Yeah, this is a real treat. This is great. I, Not to tip my hat too much. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I actually, I remember watching it. And again, I, I have a sneaking suspicion I may have actually seen it around Christmas time. I saw it, uh, Rena pointed out, you know, you normally remember who you see a film with. And it, I remember seeing this with a girlfriend at the time. I think it may have been the same girlfriend who I watched It's a Wonderful Life with as well. And I remember we've talked about It's a Wonderful Life and Darren being like, uh, you know, yeah, a cold, dead inside individual when it comes to It's a Wonderful Life. Being like, this man. you were visited. (laughs) And thrown into a parallel universe where it turns out that everything is much snazzier and wholesome because of the Hayes Code. Um, But no, I, I, you know, we talked on It's a Wonderful Life about how, you know, I have my issues with that particular film. And I think that, you know, the person who showed that film to me was perhaps a little bit sort of let down by my response to it. Mm-hmm. So we tried The Apartment shortly after that. Oof. And I loved it. Um, oh not not to tip my hand too much in, in that regard. Well, yeah, this is, it's very, I mean, it, it, it has some of the same kind of uh, plot points. Yes. Like, I, I guess. <laughs> yes, uh, not but, to get too spoilery. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but it, it, it's, it's, it, it's perhaps treating them in a more kind of a, even more sort of a dark, 
um, manner. Yeah. And kind of, it's it's very, um, yeah, the the it's it's very kind of contemporary, or 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 at least it's saying a, 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 a lot more. There was there was something very kind of, I suppose a lot of it is to do with where it's set. Yeah. As well. Set in New York City in yeah. late 1959, according to the introductory sort of discussion. And it was kind of like, what if, um, <laughs> what if instead of staying <laughs> in uh, in that little town, he had... He had oh, George he had, Bailey had George moved to the Bailey. big city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is our, like the parallel version. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Pottersville is happening because C.C. Baxter yeah. is working at this gigantic anonymous yeah, uh, insurance like, corporation. Why, um, oh, why am I always um, <laughs> obliging myself to these small town people? I go away from the city and... Oblige um, myself to those big folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No one's going to push me around in the big city. Um, yeah, the big city will be much, much more welcoming. Um, but yes, I know... Is this? Do we consider this a Christmas film? Would this be a film that you? Because you just you mentioned that you like some like it hot and think of it as a Christmas film. Yeah, and then I would probably you know like there's a specific timeline that I have a Christmas time where I'm like okay, there's certain films I need to watch on certain days because you know family doesn't matter. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I can watch it too. Yeah, that's what I do, and it's like we're watching The Searchers. <laughs> it may not be very festive, but that's just how it has to be. Um, but LA Confidential because of Bloody Christmas has to be a Christmas Eve movie uh, probably some like it hot on the day itself oddly enough but New- but New Year's Eve is reserved for uh, the apartment oh. because of the penultimate scene even though it's it's not like the, the bulk of the film is Christmas but yeah. you know it's it's the I think it's just the once Auld Lang Syne is in a movie it's a New Year's Eve movie and oh. it just has that kind of you know vibe of starting fresh and this is you know without actually giving away any of any any spoilers yet it it, it is a week from christmas to new year's eve so to me it's a new year's eve movie movie more so than christmas all right so we may have to adjust the schedule yeah (laughs) (laughs) we're out by a whole week well you can you 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 can you can listen to this either either now or save it for the day in question or if rise of the skywalker came into the charts you'll probably be listening to this around new year's as well (laughs) Um, but that's a, that's a whole separate podcast discussion of itself. So I guess then before we jump into talking about the film in a bit more depth, we have three questions that we use normally to sort of start debate. So the first one of those is, do you think that The Apartment belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Absolutely. Um, it's, and, and probably tying into um, another question that you're probably going to ask is, is it one of my favorite movies of all time? I think it's, it's never left my top five films Ever. of all time. Wow. Uh, it's just always been, it's just had a really sincere uh, personal place in my heart. I just really love it so much. And I think it's, it's because it's so cinematic, um, it gives so much weight and emotion and humanity to a story that doesn't feel like it kind of deserves to be, um, you know, like part of these big cinematic themes, it's just about being a human being in an otherwise a very mensch, cold yes. world, you know, being a mensch. And it's, that's just a very pure story about humanity in a world that's forgotten how to be, how to be human in an American corporate world in the late fifties. And I, I think it's how he saw that world and gave a lot of weight to these issues and loneliness Um with a lot of comedy and with a lot of um, 
in motion and uh, and cinema as well i think it's just it's just the rise of good feeling you have when you're watching it it's just the the original and the only romantic comedy for me this is interesting because um i guess i guess this is kind of the, the point to bring it up because um Renuk is actually a film director um, so we actually we have a we have an actual director somebody who's made cinema on this podcast which is great um cinema in quotation marks yeah, well, actually, I was about to ask that because one of the one of the things about Wilder, and we kind of we talked about it last year when we discussed Double Indemnity yeah. uh, with Carl over at the movie, movie Palace, and one of the criticisms of Wilder, there are two general strains of criticism of Wilder. First one, and actually Andrew flagged this one, is that Wilder is far, far too cynical um, to be considered a master of American cinema, which I don't think I'd agree with, and we'll probably talk about that oh. later on. Um, but this cinema thing is something that keeps coming back up. Which I remember is, saying that. <laughs> I guess said, it is. You did well. You said when I said when I said that I liked uh, this much more than uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Your response was like, "Yeah, this is. I can see that. This is a much more cynical movie. It has a much more sort of cynical perspective to a certain extent. It's a much more the apartment. The apartment. Whoa, I don't think it's no, cynical. No, no, no. no, no I, okay. I didn't say it was cynical. Okay. I said it was darker. Darker. Sorry. Uh, yeah, darker. But I don't think it's cynical at no. all. I, I would um, agree with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. So we'll come back to that. <laughs> uh, but to bring the point up about cinema, because one of the arguments is that um, obviously Wilder, you know, directed a lot of, you know, variety of genres, including comedy, film noir, stuff like that. He was largely excluded from the French New Wave reappraisal of American mm-hmm. cinema um, in the early 60s. I think Andrew Saris in particular was very sort of snide in his discussions of Wilder's work because he, he argued that Wilder didn't have a cinematic eye and i think even say mark cousins um who wrote and again this is this is like praising like praising uh wilder while also kind of condemning him in the same sentence uh mark cousins wrote the introduction to the screenplay to the apartment and his argument was that the apartment actually played better on television because it didn't feel cinematic which is not something that i would entirely agree with no Uh, steve merchant um who is a huge fan this is his favorite movie of all time well, Merchant, it, as as in the the, um, I don't see why it's a criticism though. Well, I, I I I do feel like this is more a intimate stage play or something. Sort of no, that it feels watching at home. Watching it at home feels like an appropriate place to. I I I I can't. I I I can kind of see. Um, perhaps what 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 they mean, but I I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I wouldn't necessarily say the same about some like it hot. Um, I feel like that's a like Much like comedies in general are, are well they're appreciated with a crowd. Aren't yeah, they? Yeah, 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 yeah. And definitely having seen it in I saw it in the IFI years ago, like it's still, I, I it, it's the opening shots when you come into the office and you get that lovely perspective of the rows of and rows and rows of people yeah. and you're like you get you, you you do get these feelings and i think it's the the kind of cinema that i think he does really well is the, the, the cinema that you hardly even notice you're you're absorbing in that that visual sense of there's always things going on in the background like when you see cc baxter he's one of literally thousands of people you're focused on him but you're 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 absorbing the whole frame and even when you're there talking when he's talking to some of the bosses in some of their small offices the sets have people going on in the background and there's just this sense of scale and depth even the apartment itself has this 
kind of it goes like it goes further into the into the background so that you have the wide shot it's like 3d or yeah. something it's because it was isn't it it's cinemascope i yeah. think and it's it just has this immediate epic quality to something quite small which had to have been um deliberate it has oh. this kind of feeling of the bigger things the, the the smaller things deserve the bigger scale or something because i mean wilder's on record and there are some wonderful quotes from wilder uh merchant steve merchant who was a big wilder fan talks about like he talked to him at one stage while he was still alive and um his response was you know that uh, wilder talked about how he wouldn't stick a camera behind a roaring fireplace because you never actually watch life unfold behind a roaring fireplace or in a playboy interview that he conducted um shortly after the release of this film in 1960 his response was if i want to clean up at the international film festivals all i need to do is make a twenty-five thousand dollar film about the sex lives of sardinian fishermen but i don't <laughs> want to do that um and like i mean the, one of the reappraisals yeah and that, that's exactly and while there's very populist he's, he's, an, he's an avowed populist he's a, all about cinema being accessible and i think that one of the great discussions or some of the great discussions i've seen about the filmmaking within the apartment is the stuff you alluded to the use of widescreen which purposely makes baxter small mm-hmm. and you don't yeah. get that on a tv and particularly Anonymous on an old tv yeah. that's as exactly. well even like in there there's uh, i don't think it gives much away but they did in in terms of talking about how it's shot um there's a scene where he's in a bar and he has this very distinctive bowler hat, but he's anyone yeah. in the bar. Like, it, it, he doesn't kind of... Um, Stand out. He isn't yeah. separated. He isn't framed in order to, like, he's, present He's become kind of part of the, 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 the furniture, throng, yeah. yeah. And again, yeah, those shots of people pouring into the office at 9am to flood the elevators yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. And you know how they accomplished the those shots? Yeah, this, is, this is kind of amazing. <laughs> how they accomplished those shots of the office that seems to go up back infinitely with like people walking people. that's it exactly they use little people yeah. uh, they use forced perspective and little people in the background and the 13 and a half floor <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so that's it so in order to like the set obviously you wasn't... believe that story <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so they didn't use the um they didn't use the set the actual set space it was forced perspective uh, which is kind of cool again wow. really great sort of filmmaking there as well yeah, how did they um a cuban um jockey uh, <laughs> kind of came in on that day to, just to, to hang around their forced <laughs> perspective in, yeah. in the back of their like a little 99 pounds yeah <laughs> he looked he looked gigantic though at the back. he was one of the tall people at the back of the office little mickey yeah um and andrew what about yourself do you think that this is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made um I would say having just watched it yesterday, it's definitely one of my favorite. I would I would say like out of out of all of the movies that we've seen, and we've seen quite a few, too many. <laughs> this, uh, this 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 at this stage, one hundred and sixty five, I think. Of wow, all of, the, of the two hundred and fifty, but they keep changing. It's the futility of uh, it's, it's pushing that ball. It's snuck yeah. right in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but um, I'd say that this 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 might. This might even be in my top 10. I don't know wow. about how it fits into discussions of being one of kind of objectively the top 250 movies of all time, but it certainly um, it would, 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 would be in my list. Yeah. yeah. I, I, th- I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was incredible. I thought it was so um, well uh, structured, tonally, so fantastically written um extremely funny and uh, sad and sweet, there was yeah. great kind of pathos in it and it, it was um uplifting in spite of how 
dark um, the subject matter could be. At yeah, points. yeah, yeah. And how and and how kind of um, deft of portrayal of the kind of um, inhumanity mm-hmm. um, in 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 the story was. We still come away from it um, feeling um, hopeful and glad. Yeah. I think. I kind of I would agree with both those sentiments. I think it belongs on both lists, to be honest. Since we've sort of combined those two questions together as kind of like a a, a Christmas present or whatever. I don't know. I'm stretching the analogy, but the um, the, the real present is that that's what we will do from now on. <laughs> Just combine all three and not have the separate go round. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know, listeners. Um, I must be careful how I how I uh, frame this poll but if 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 you if you like the superfluous tree question format as opposed to the ruthlessly efficient uh, alternative that andrew is suggesting um we'll take the i think the only solution is another referendum andrew um but yeah i would i would agree then on both counts i think that it does belong on the list i think it is a fantastically well-made film uh, just in general but i also think it's a fantastically important influential and kind of like just capturing a certain aspect of, of life as Andrew pointed. And again this is the thing where we talk about these things and when, you know what is the best movie ever is an inherently subjective question how do you even measure such things but for me I don't know you you get like a a, a, a couple a, of hundred a people scale, on the internet and an x-axis a y-axis is it like that scene in um in uh, dead poet society where we're judging the value of of of, of poetry based on yeah. <laughs> on a graph. Yeah, um, but <laughs> we haven't we haven't introduced that into the format of the show yet. <laughs> this is there are going to be some changes in the new year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to have uh, watchability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let us let us let us know whether I why am I why do I feel like I'm the, the CC Baxter to your shoulder? <laughs> I'm like Andrew. I prepared a list of documents here. I've grafted. Yeah. If you look at the grades here, I... yeah, and Andrew's like it's. It's New Year's Eve. Just uh, take it easy, Darren. Um, but yeah, no, I, if, if one were to insist on, on kind of this sort of measurement and to mm. try and make it, I suggest there are a number of criteria. I think that, you know, is this film universal? Does it speak mm. to the human condition? I think this does. Mm-hmm. Does this film also say something very particular about the moment it was made? Somehow paradoxically. And I think, yes, this does. I think this captures a moment in cultural history. I think this is a snapshot of a point in time. And we'll probably talk about that when we get to the, the second half as well. It's, you know, Andrew's very fond of, again, the, the kind of the cliche of it'll make you laugh, it'll make you cry. This does. This does both mm-hmm. things. Mm. I was watching it um, yesterday in preparation for this. Have you seen the trailer for this? I have not yeah. seen the trailer for this. <laughs> it's <crazy>. like, <laughs> it has laughs, tears, and action. <laughs> oh, like, yes, yeah. like the action yeah, shot yeah, is. Yeah, like, because exactly. there's one action one shot action in shot. the exactly. entire film. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm yeah. fairly sure I know which one they use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The... Um, uh, from your Marlon Brando impersonator. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Showcasing Jack Lemmon's um, uh, uh, comic talents and his versatility. And Shirley MacLaine as a darling, darling, darling woman. <laughs> look well, at her. <laughs> look, at, look at how sweet and nice she is. Oh, boy. <laughs> Welcome to 1960s film advertising. Um, it's when you long for the day of Alfred Hitchcock just wandering around a set promising you that yeah. a movie will be good. I mean, uh, they're right. <laughs> she does bring a warmth to the screen. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so I think the film does, does capture that. And so I think that there's an argument for it in those terms. And also just, I was watching it yesterday 
and people are coming into the room and getting stuck watching it which is always great that's always a good sign when you have a movie on for yourself and when people kind of come into the room and sort of get stuck in its orbit that's always a kind of a testament to the movie people itself just come into your apartment like, <laughs> into your house like like they like they belong there yeah. uh, I'm sorry I made a second keys? key yeah. say, it's when I make a second key for somebody that's when we start to worry I see kind of like I, I, I do like to watch it with new people or like introduce it to friends or people that haven't seen it before so yesterday I was watching it with my my boyfriend who hadn't seen it um and it, you know like I was taking it so seriously because it was if you don't like it you, you know then it's you don't have natural empathy towards yeah. you know the human condition and you're a garbage person yeah and it's like, <laughs> no judgments on this part <laughs> <laughs> but please like this movie because it is such a litmus test to whether you know you're going to be a friend of mine or not <laughs> it's, it's just so pure and and and, and you know innocent and, and fantastic and it's just like you, you can't not love jack lemon in that movie it's just physically impossible yeah. um but luckily he liked it and we're still together <laughs> <laughs> you know that actually have you guys I, it, 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 like if 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 you weren't still together this would be the way to kind of get to it let out the there, news out there. i'm single now exactly. yeah, yeah. yeah um you guys know the origin do you have you have you guys heard the origin story for this movie there no. are three different origin stories and multiple choice and everybody takes different sort of credit for it so, uh, uh, was it billy wilder based by some sort of radioactive sorry go on what, 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 radio- what? he was bit by a radioactive apartment <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, okay so the wholesome studio approved version that went out in the press at the time uh, is the one that comes from wilder himself quoted in ed sickoff sunset boulevard and he talks about remembering seeing brief encounter uh, which is the story of a married man, a married woman, and a man who used the bedroom of a friend for their rendezvous. And so Wilder looked at that and he's like, what must it be like to be that friend to climb into, and he describes it as the warm bed after it's been used. And so he talks about how when he was making Some Like It Hot, he was like, Jack Lemon, perfect man for that role. And apparently he actually invited Lemon to start making it almost immediately after the first screening of Some Like It Hot. Um, the other version of this comes from Tony Curtis, um, who talks about, and I love Tony Curtis. I'm going to quote f- directly from Tony Curtis on this. Um, with his voice? No, with not that? with his voice. <laughs> Do you want to try and read it in his voice? No, no, I don't, okay. I don't, I don't think I, um, I am, okay. I'm out of, would be out of practice. <laughs> if we had just seen some like it out, maybe. Uh, so Tony Curtis's account is, the reason it came about was because there are a lot of beautiful girls who are extras and bit players that I wanted to Christmas find, tree. And I did. Most of the time, the problem wasn't the girl. It was the place. So Tony used his friend Nikki Blair's bachelor pad somewhere off Laurel Canyon. According to Curtis, the hose-nosed Hollywood columnist Sidney Skulski ran into Blair one day when Blair was killing time by sitting in his own parked car. Why can't you go home? Skulski inquired. Tony's up there with a girl, Blair answered. According to Curtis, Skulski wrote it up as a treatment and sold it and it became the apartment. Curtis also claims that Wilder didn't cast him in the Nicky Blair role because he was too good looking. Which I quite like. Uh, and then finally, um, there's the allegation that it may have been inspired uh, by the story of producer Walter... We didn't play him in the... In, we didn't put him in the F. Murray Abraham... Oh, sorry. That's not the name of that actor. <laughs> Fred McMurray. <laughs> I'm all on board with the uh, uh, F. Murray Abraham. Bring, bring yeah. this up to the child in the 19th floor. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> There's really 
Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but in 1951, producer Walter Wanger discovered that his wife, Joan Bennett, was having an affair with the agent Jennings Lang. The encounters are brief and frequent. When Lang and Bennett weren't meeting clandestinely at various spots like New Orleans and the West Indies, they were back in LA enjoying weekday quickies at Beverly Hills apartments otherwise occupied by Lang's underlings at the agency. When Wanger found out proof of the affair, he did what any crazed cuckold would do. And by the way, that's a direct quote. He shot Lang in the balls. Given its timing, Life magazine couldn't help but observe that Lang's passage, for, sorry, that Wanger's passage from cell to police desk, a walk punctuated by flashbulbs and the hum of news camera reels, looked and sounded uncomfortably like the end of Sunset Boulevard. So apparently those are the three different kind of like inspirations that have been cited yeah. for the apartment. I feel like it could have been all of the above. <laughs> yeah. The story and everything. Wanger's. And... <laughs> Great name. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I do like that it was well, Wanger and Lang. Yeah. yeah. Um, just in case you didn't, yeah. <laughs> not yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and shadow, shadow, shadow him in the balls. Yeah. So miss the the the, the yeah. langer or the wanger. Yeah. Um, it definitely goes a bit off theme at the end, you know. Like it's it's, not, it's actually the playful <laughs> romp, but like oh, we shot him in the balls. Yeah. And Shit. Sunset Boulevard. Um, <laughs> Life magazine actually compared to Sunset Boulevard. So yeah, that's apparently the origin story. That's of actually the a twist to the you know without giving away the. the, the I can't spoil it at this point in the yeah. podcast, can I? No, no. in a moment okay. we can. Okay. Do you want to do you want to go in a moment? Okay, so we'll let, in a moment okay, so very quickly, spoiler. final question: If listeners have not, and I suspect I know the answer to this, if listeners have not seen the apartment yet, should they pause the podcast, run out, stick on the apartment? I mean, you know, the, the 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 end the ending is on every single DVD cover. In, in it's even in the trailer, so you know, like I, it it's is. kind of not like. Kind of out of context. You could spoil it, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't spoil the experience of watching it. I would say, um, I mean, at least you you know what's you kind of know what's going to happen. I think, and it does have a really without getting too spoiler. It does have a really great last minute kind of. I don't want to start mm-hmm. as a scare, but like escalate potential escalation. And that's what I was which, alluding to. Yes, that uh, would have yeah, suited yeah. that last yeah. anecdote perfectly yeah. if that was actually what happened in the apartment. That yeah. would have been really. A, a twist let's just say but it all the, goes off for the pop mm-hmm. yeah if um if if um sorry yeah i guess <laughs> i guess we can't reveal kind of what happened but he, he doesn't get um, shot in the balls n- no is, <laughs> that's think, a if he's if he uh, <laughs> and, and when you read about people shooting themselves uh, and w- when you read about people killing themselves it sounds so simple but what do you do? <laughs> you put it in your mouth? Do you put it against your head? Do you shoot yourself in the balls? I don't know. <laughs> These are tough questions. Um, it's like that last one. Definitely don't do that. Yeah. Um, Listeners, just to be clear. It's definitely Sheldrake shooting them in the balls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, all right then. So I think we would all recommend that people watch it. Oh my God, absolutely. And you're in for a treat if you haven't seen it yet. And if you don't like it, then you're not going to be my friend. Sorry. Yeah, this is a test of what kind of person you are. <laughs> heavily, the heavily so, moral in this podcast. Yeah, we're not, we're not going like, to recommend you watch it. We're going to insist you watch it <laughs> and then judge you based on your opinion. Of it. Yeah, yeah. And the two fifty is a very welcoming podcast. It is. In the Christmas it is. Spirit. Like, yeah, whether, whether Merry you, Christmas, everybody. Whether you like it or not, we still want you to listen. You wouldn't be our worst <laughs> listener. <laughs> watch it with family, so you can judge all of your family as well. Well, yeah. this is what Christmas is about. <laughs> All right, on that note, we're going to segue neatly into the spoiler zone. 
So, Renak, <laughs> what is the apartment about for you? Ooh, I mean, I think it's, a, mm, I, I, you know, I think it's about loneliness. I think it handles that theme so perfectly um, because it's not really about loneliness. It's about a guy who gives a key to the bosses in his office and he's trying to climb a corporate ladder and he's doing that quite well but it's like the it's so well written because it's the theme that just doesn't uh, start to percolate until he starts falling in love uh with Miss Kublik and it's about when he starts to realize how lonely he is and how much he needs to be a human being be a mensch it's about that these are the things that actually really matter it's how high you can climb on a corporate ladder and how you know how much you're told you're supposed to supposed to make supposed to earn uh you know what kind of person you're supposed to be if you're supposed to use people and throw them away and just forget about certain things and just you know the live fast uh was it dino what's the thing uh neighbor says you know diners club um you know live now pay later diners club it's it's these are the things that we get caught up doing anyway and this is why it's still really uh, it still really fits no matter what time you watch it in. It's about the kind of life you want to live. Um, if you want to be in a corporate climbing role or you want to actually give Christmas tree people around you. And it's not until Kubelik goes to this really dark place that they start to form this connection and he realizes how lonely he's been. And it's just a really subtle film about loneliness. And it, the fact that it's... It's the most romantic movie ever made, I think, because it's not necessarily filled with big gushing love scenes or the couple don't even kiss the whole time. Um, And there's all these other people having affairs and falling in love. And the, the person you love is never exactly going to be in love with you at the same time. It's just a very pure film about, uh, two people who fall in love at the right moment who see each other at the exact right time which is a more realistic love story than you are meant to be together you were star-crossed destiny pulled you together exactly yeah stuff. there's two people in a building and she's in love with someone else uh you're both very lonely people being taken advantage of and you just the miracle of the film is you happen to see each other at the right time and that's the beauty of it i think and I, I really like the kind of ambivalence of, of, of the love story. And what I mean by that is that it's not just a story, um, a, a, a positive story about love, because to, to, to have told that story would be only kind of half mm-hmm. of the kind of, 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 of what we know about love. It's not just, it, it's, it's, it's also about how, um, uh, it's it's about how vulnerable love can 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 make you, and and it's also about how powerful, um, uh, love can make you, and kind of about, about the the that that it could, because for um for for Kubelik, it kind of uh, um destroys her, um in, initially and um yeah, she, her love for Sheldrake yeah yeah for Sheldrake, um but for um for Baxter. For Baxter, it it's uh, it uplifts him and 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 it, 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 it makes him kind of a, a a better person. 
Eventually it does. I mean, it, yeah. also, it also shatters him as well. I mean, to get to get back to, to what Rinoch was saying there, this is one of the things about that criticism of Wilder as being overly uh, cynical. Because um, again, this is this won the Best Picture Oscar in 1960. Oh, that's right, yeah. And was seen as being a kind of a very strange choice for the Academy to have made. It also won Best Director and Best Screenplay as well, which Wilder collected as well. Mm-hmm. Apparently he was told when he went up to collect the Best Screenplay Oscar, now would be the time to stop Billy. Um, which is like basically this is as high as you're going to get coming off the back of some like at heart winning yeah. the Oscar for this. I think Wilder is in some of his more candid interviews has talked about after the fact that maybe there was some truth in that because some of his yeah, films yeah. after the fact didn't quite n- hit the same mark at all. But again, when you're hitting that level yes. and, and you're hitting that level back to back as well, doing some like it hot and doing this, mm-hmm. you know, that's like not being able to consistently hit that is not a, a you know, a bad mark God against no. you at all. Yeah. Um, he was a big selling point for this movie. Oh, as he well. was the poster. Yeah. The poster has from Billy some like it hot Wilder. Um, he was a huge selling point for this. Um, but the thing is that his films are generally discussed in terms of being cynical and being jaded. And we talked a little bit about this again when we talked about Double Indemnity. But there's an incredible humanity in his work, and I think it's it's exactly what you're talking about there. It's the idea that you know. Wilder doesn't necessarily present the world as, you know, we would like to imagine it being, as being sugar-coated and full of people who are sweet, sensitive, caring, and are always looking out for each other and everybody else. Wilder tends to see the world, you know, I don't want to be overly cynical or pessimistic, but as it is to a certain extent, where you have that discussion from, from Kubelik, where she's talking about, you know, the world is two kinds of people, yeah. the people who take and the people who get took. And Wilder's films throughout his filmography tend to be about that. They're one of the recurring themes that's been spotted in his work is this idea of exploitation, of people yeah. exploiting kind of systems or each other or taking advantage of people and, and various things like that. But the It's not just that though. No, no, no it's not just that. But that's that's what I'm getting at, is that yeah. like he's has a reputation of being cynical, I think, because of that. But at the heart of each of those movies is something resembling like something very human, very passionate. The idea is be a mensch. The idea is that Wilder, and again, I don't want to oversell it and make him seem overly sentimental or humanist. I mean, in his own interviews, he dismisses the idea that he's overly sentimental or humanist. But I think that he believes, maybe he believes, or looking at his films, I can believe that he believes that people are decent and good. It just, it takes work Can to be, be decent. Yeah, that's it. It takes work yeah. to be decent and it's, good. It's really easy to just, to, it's, it's, it's easy to be cynical in an already cynical world and i think that's why i kind of i I can see i i would never have classified him as a cynical filmmaker because i think there's there's such a spark of humanity in those characters the world around them yeah is is completely cynical that now i haven't even i didn't, didn't even think about what you know like the world in the office is quite dark and it's done with such humor but like it's it's it was incredibly black humor for that time like yeah. all of that um well, i mean we can talk about it now like the, the the film has a climactic joke which hinges on the idea that oops maybe a suicide happened <laughs> um like that's one of the film's last jokes is maybe baxter killed himself which is incredibly dark <laughs> for not only for a christmas film but for a 1960s kind of black he tried to kill himself yeah. like we're told yeah and ended up shooting himself instead. In the and, then, and you've seen him packing up his stuff. So you're like, and you know, he's like, I don't know where I'm going after this. So you believe it's possible. You've seen him take the gun out of the drawer. Now you saw him put it in a box, but that means you've been reminded the gun exists. He put and all so- his stuff in boxes and then was going to wrap them in plastic. <laughs> <laughs> so that none of the stuff got anywhere. And, yeah. And then finally, yeah. Um, but, it's like, oh damn, I wrapped it in plastic and I left a gun in the box. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, no, so, so even things like, but 
Kubla coming up the stairs and hearing the sound. Yeah. yeah. Which sounds like a it's gunshot. It's a gunshot sound. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it, like even listening to it last night, it's like, it's... I remember watching it in the IFI and everyone in the cinema was like, oh God. And people actually got really, really, really scared that that it was a gunshot. And I was like, but it's so obviously a champagne cork. But yeah, it sounds like a gunshot. Yeah. Like they clearly just used a, sh- a, a gunshot. But it's, that's like, that's how dark the sense of humor in the film is. I mean, even, even past that, the film's closing line where, you know, Baxter confesses <laughs> how much he loves Kubrick and how much he's decided that he needs her and how, how wonderful she makes him feel and her response that again one of the greatest closing lines in cinema along with again back to back two of the best closing lines in cinema back to back so you know nobody's perfect and some like it hot and here you have shut up and deal which is just beautiful it's and again it's it undercuts the like saccharine sentimentality so you get that there you get the sweetness you don't get the i love you back you don't get the the you know absorbed in a embrace and a big hollywood kiss you get shut up and deal which just feels so perfectly like they can you know they They can make this work they can make that work it's not about the kiss it's not about the big hollywood moment you're you're aching for it's just about them like them seeing each other at the right time it's just so perfect and it's okay as well with her not quite being where he is <laughs> yes right. given, like, given where yeah, she's yeah. been yeah. Yeah. yeah she's just run away from the love of her life yeah. to, to go and, and be with him so and is like a week away from a suicide attempt as well again yeah, this, is, this, like, is, this, is, <laughs> this timeline is really crazy in this movie when you watch it again you're just like this is a Christmas tree. Well, <laughs> yeah. that, that's Climbed it. Like, the whole corporate ladder in a week. <laughs> well, yeah, this is the the pivot point of it. So, that, like, I think we're talking. Rena mentioned earlier. I think that the the film opens around Halloweenish. Mm. Like, there's a mention of a Halloween party early on. Yeah, the, the, um, last week there was a Halloween party, so we're out of uh, liquor. And, or, yeah. it, it was a reference to a Halloween party, so it was like November seventh, yeah. maybe. And then there's a kind of a cut in time. There's a jump in time up until around about Christmas Eve, and then. In the film's second act, right? And it, again, this is the thing where you're talking about Wilder sort of not doing what you expect from a sentimental romantic comedy. The first act is all almost kind of screwball comedy of errors, comedy of kind of like, you know, comedy of manners to a certain extent as well. Famously, um, he told, I think it was Paul Douglas, the actor in 1959, Wilder was walking uh, with him from dinner and said to Paul Douglas, I want to make a movie about a six letter word, sorry, a seven letter word that begins with F and ends in G. Um, and I want you to be in it. And apparently Douglas was originally cast in the Sheldrake role, uh, but he passed away before production began and it went to, to Fred McMurray, um, who is very good, but we'll probably talk about him in a moment. But like so much of the first half of the film is this kind of like screwball comedy of errors, like bunch of guys trying to have affairs, get into the apartment. You've got jokes about scheduling. You've got jokes about... I love the scheduling joke. It's just, <laughs> it's the most relatable joke in that screwball comedy fashion. It's just... Who hasn't tried to move a date and go like, can you do this? Can you do this? It's just, it's just perfect comedy. Yeah. And again, the, the juxtaposition of doing that, but with adultery and with an affair and with like the use of your own apartment. But like the film then transitions from that wonderfully broad, goofy, you know, kind of like cheeky setup into basically 40 minutes of like dealing with the aftermath of a suicide attempt, which is even on rewatch, a sharp pivot. It's it's an incredible turn. That scene is is uh, is incredible. Like watching it last night, and um, it still doesn't fail to shock you because it is quite screwbally. And even when he's even the scene itself, when he comes back with Mrs. McDougal, and you know, and he's pretending to be 
you know, that's kind of like the lowest point for him because that's when he's kind of giving in to the cynical world around him and he's stopped being a human and he's going to have sex with this married woman and take advantage of her vulnerability on Christmas Eve. I mean, probably not take advantage because she's clearly... She's the one pushing it. She's clearly up for it too. But it's just, you know, he's lost a sense of his morality. He's going to have sex with a married woman and he just doesn't care. He doesn't give a Christmas tree. And the butts the scene gets is really funny because he's walking around with the gloves he's like you know he needs to and then he runs out and she and you know you have to buy yourself a new refrigerator and he runs out the door (laughs) i didn't mean right now (laughs) oh my god she's taking pills and it's still really funny what the hell is this and the minute the the kind of cha-cha music stops yes it the tone is just like a drain in the room because you hear her throwing throwing up and uh Dr. Dreyfus is pumping her stomach yeah. and then all of a sudden he just like slaps Slapping her in the her, face yeah. and gives smelling sauce and then he, you you have he stays on that shot of her Getting slapping slapped. her face for like yeah. what seems like way too long and, and how shocked Baxter is as well yeah and I mean apparently while the they're coffee the, the pot going off in the background the it just is so tense Wilder apparently had a physician on set as well to check that sequence to make sure that it worked oh. um, and his response was like apparently the cut that he used in the film, he was told that he was not slapping her hard enough by the physician in that situation. We've seen we've seen too many Hitchcock and Tarantino movies. I was certain that you were going to say Billy wasn't sure he was uh, that, that he was slapping her hard <laughs> enough, so got in and said, "Here's how you do it." Yeah. Said, "Excuse yeah. me, Doctor Dreyfus. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll show you how to film this scene." But no, apparently Wilder Wilder couldn't do it. He didn't want to put McLean through a retake uh, yeah, with yeah. a harder slap. So apparently, because pretty, pretty it is pretty tough as it yeah. is, yeah, it's it's not an easy scene to watch. It's quite no. jarring. What's remarkable? Actually, this is interesting. She um, is fantastic, by the way. McLean, yeah, yeah, yeah. In 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 that scene, even like they, she she is so so um, talented and and so charismatic um, and just. She she really kind of not knocks it out of the park, and she has a lot to do in this movie. Oh, she has so yeah. much of a range to play because yeah. she is quite um like sweet, almost yeah. manic pixie dream girl. You're the girl of my exactly. dreams, so I'm gonna yeah. apply this idea of who I think you are. Then when I find out you're not who I think you are, I don't like you anymore. But it's just the the idea as well that um like when she has that chat with Miss Olsen in at the Christmas party. Yeah. And she comes in and she's, in, you see the mood completely drain out of her face. Mm. Yeah. She's like, I haven't seen that many female comedy heroes that are depressed and, yeah. you know, and, and can't crack a smile. Can't, you know, she's not relying on these sort of common tropes that would have been very common at the time to be yeah. leading lady. It's, she's, she's depressed. She's sad. She's weighed down by actual complex feelings yeah. and it's just it's so relatable and I, I don't even think it's it's a common now that's exactly i was kind of thinking that because it's like i remember watching it and being almost surprised by the complexity of, of miss kublik as a character because the film is very much it's from baxter's perspective it's like you're introduced to baxter he's the one who gives the voiceover and when you're introduced to, to kublik it's often through his eyes yeah. so you're sort of thinking that like and particularly in that opening stretch of the movie where he's immediately attracted to her and be smitten with her and you find out that she's you know having an affair with Sheldrake as well yeah. your gut feeling is that the way the movie is going to play this is going to focus on how he feels 
And a lot of modern comedies even do that now. Because I remember even things about like 500 Days of Summer, yeah. which was seen as being like seen as being at the time revolutionary for having this idea mm-hmm. that what if this girl who this guy was attracted to was more complex than his depiction or imagination of her would be. And I, I mean, I really like 500 Days of Summer. I think that it's a more complicated movie and it's got a really complicated legacy. But I think that like going back and watching The Apartment, all that stuff is there in that movie. Kubelik becomes more complex and more multifaceted and more developed in that second half of the movie. And in fact, the way in which the movie wrong foots you to a certain extent in the first half yeah. is very clever, I think. It's so clever because it has him coming out of the elevator and, uh, you know, like after she gets the slap in the ass and and people are like, you know, what, what, you know what? No, everyone's trying to run at her and no one wants to, you know, she just won't, won't give us a date. Like, what's her problem? And like, it could be that she's just a nice, respectable girl and you... No, Look at little Lord Fulroy here. <laughs> but, again, but again, that's the thing where it gets at the difficulty of being uh, being a mensch or being a good person to a certain extent is because of how, like, because there's a sense in which Baxter is genuine and maybe she's just a decent person. Maybe that's what it is here. And the immediate response from his co-workers and superiors and the men who control his career and his financial future is yeah. man up, you know? Yeah. But then it's also how he sees her in that moment. He sees this kind of Girl Scout um He's polite to her because, you know, like, and there's just a because of her uniform, I'm not a Girl Scout. Exactly. I, I, lo- I love that because it's just, he just sees her as this perfect girl and he takes his hat off and he thinks she's respectable in that kind of 50s sense. So when he finds out that she's actually just another mistress, you know, there's a reference of, you, you, you know, you were only in my elevator twice and you didn't take my hat off. It's like he's. Um, oh no! Wait, that was actually yeah. That was after. That was after. Yes. That was after. Yeah. When, think, he find, when he finds out. I think, uh, when he finds out yeah. I think he's embarrassed of himself though as well, and his affection for her. Like I don't. I I I mean, I suppose maybe it's both. Like like I I didn't when I was watching it. I suppose maybe um it could be. It could be interpreted as that he had kind of um, went off her or was disgusted by kind of the thought of her and 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 um, um, and Sheldrake. But it 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 felt more that he he was um, embarrassed, kind of in himself, mm-hmm. and and that um, that he actually actually did have feelings for someone in the otherwise cynical world which i think that's why he crashes so hard yeah when he finds well, out as well well it's the great shot when he finds out and again like this is the thing where wild we talk about perfect use of props all yeah. the way yeah the talk, yeah people talk about like wilder as not being a very visual storyteller yeah. that shot of him so he hands the compact back to uh, sheldrake explains that the mirror inside is broken you get a shot establishing the mirror inside is broken and when he te- he's putting the hat on and he wants to know what he looks like she gives him the compact with the broken mirror and and again wilder who is like notoriously self-critical in fact wilder (laughs) i think when asked for his assessment on the apartment i think 50 years after the fact not 50 years after the fact but say 40 years after the fact um shortly before he passed away i think by cameron crowe who wrote Cameron Crowe took time out from his directing career to write a book, uh, a book length interview with Wilder, who apparently is a fantastic subject, as you might imagine. Uh, Wilder's like assessment of the apartment was, 
that's pretty good. Uh, which is kind of amazing <laughs> when you look back on your work. But even then, like he talked about, like with Crow, how he would like to tinker with things. I would have thought, for example, in hindsight, would he give like, would he give Lemon's character, would he give uh, Baxter a limp in order to make him seem more pathetic or more sympathetic and stuff like that. But he's described that he's, shot. Yeah, he's been shot in the knee. You yeah. would expect he would have a... Yeah. Um, so like, I mean, even then, like, so, you know, while there's not a man who's particularly like proud of himself or sort of up, in, up himself to a certain extent, he's very candid about what he sees as his work and where it could have been improved and, and what, what shortcomings he feels it has. But he has described that shot of Baxter looking at his reflection in the broken mirror as a perfect shot as one of the most perfect things that he has ever done as a director. And it is because it communicates, not only does it communicate the plot information, it also serves thematically as well, because you have the image of him with the bowler hat on his head, but fractured and broken, which is the moment at which Andrew was suggesting he realizes he's not the man that he thought he was because he's not attracted to the woman that he thought he was attracted to. Yeah, everything, the world has changed. It's like the world is completely broken in that moment. The whole film gets split into where do you go from here what do you want what are your goals in life everything you see it all in his face directly afterwards and it's because because it's such a film with so much uh witty dialogue and everything's just really fast and you have these really great moments where the props are speaking 10 times louder than anything else and you don't have nothing not one word is said to completely wreck his his world it's just all done in the exchange of a mirror in yeah. a few seconds. It's perfect. And the visual storytelling as well, actually. And, and some of the greatest kind of wit that that um, um, that's uh, that comes from Kubrick um, is is in is in that uh, period when she when she's dealing with the the betrayal of of, of Shadrick and some of her best lines, kind mm-hmm. of and the the the. the, the and it 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 seems like a a kind of like an, an an easy line maybe, but the I I think it's kind of the way she delivers it or the way it's kind of construct is it, is about about the the mirror, um kind of it that it that it that it looks that the it way I feel looks the yeah. way I feel that that was just kind of heartbreaking. And it's yeah. so dark as well. Yeah. it's just her face. It's. And then he immediately takes the call and it's Sheldrick. He's like, if you don't mind, this is personal. And he's like, you know, please. Christmas tree. Now. And it's just like, whoa, this is, this is harsh. Yeah. yeah. I think like as well, the, 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 the moments when he's, you know, I'm trying to think of it last night when he has to play nurse to her after attempt. It's such a long sequence in the film. Uh, then they're playing gin rummy and they're, um, you know and they're they're having all these chats about suicide and there's there's spaghetti and there's tennis rackets there's a whole long sequence where they're living together and you know the whole point of it is is so significant because it's really about him that's him re-triggering his humanity and coming back down to earth and forgetting about all these things that used to matter so much to him um you know, the, it's, a, it's such a tricky situation to be in. The person that you love is just claimed to still be in love with Sheldrick, even after all of this this suicide attempt. And yet he's still there taking tending care of her, her tending her. It's so sweet and so heartbreaking. And when, you, when yeah. she's like, I, why can't I fall in love with someone just like you? And like the, that's how it crumbles, cookie-wise. You're just like, <laughs> oh, it's true. <laughs> Her co- and, and and then the, the the at the end of the movie her coming back and and playing the kind of gin rummy is kind of an, an acknowledgement of 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 that time 
that he's been kind of like nursing her and cooking for yeah. her like actually i'm gonna come back and finish this because we never and the champagne was on ice as well yeah. during the dinner and they actually get to have the champagne to finish the rummy it's like these little things actually get resolved all the way through and actually it was one thing i i did check last night um or at least my my fellow pointed out but i actually didn't investigate it there's something about the significance of gin rummy and gin uh the rules of it and the you know the way she they, they have the, the recurring joke with the, the, four, the, the three four drinks three. while we're holding up four fingers and yeah. i'd like oh that's <laughs> nothing left spare nothing at all <laughs> uh well that that's it well i mean um famously the when you talk about nothing being left spare uh, apparently wilder had i think five five feet of film left at the end he'd shot it so perfectly he mapped it so perfectly from his head to what was on screen that he only had five foot of, of kind of cut off um again in that playboy interview from 1960 he says like if i've done my job right the only thing left on the cutting room floor are tears chewing gum and cigarette butts um <laughs> which is kind of a wonderful billy wilder line um and the, the gin rummy thing is actually fascinating because i i didn't know that but i apparently that was something that was largely improvised because what would happen is Shirley MacLaine um, had been learning Rummy from Sinatra and the Rat Pack. Mm. And apparently uh, Wilder and his writer, um, ILA Diamond, who would work with him through the end of his career, um, the pair of them decided they would write it into the script as well, which is interesting. Yeah, I think that was something I never, because I never played Gin Rummy before, so I had no idea what the rules were, but I decided to to investigate it halfway through the film and okay. and go oh yeah there's a bit of significance with the you know the how many drinks three. have you yeah. had you know three, three. <laughs> yeah, holding, holding four four yeah. <laughs> sorry it is an audio <laughs> medium we should, we should point that out to listeners um but yeah again it, it is so so well constructed actually as well very relatable as well i feel i feel like that that kind of a, a thing of somebody is sick and you coming and kind of being with them and uh, playing cards with them I, I i feel i feel like that's something that that um that that I I think that's something I've done myself like a few times. Or someone's been low, just, like, yeah, pretending yeah. to really and, bad rut, and you just need exactly to, to sit with them and go. It'll be great. What do we do now? Yeah, we'll, uh, let's just do something silly. Play cards, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the idea of kind of it being a sort of a caring thing is like caring is maintenance almost to a certain extent. It's oh. like it's not the big moments, it's the little moments. That exactly, make it. yeah, and the, it gives so much weight to that and so much cinema to that because it is in the apartment it's in this tiny little snug place and it's in still in cinema scope and there's draining spaghetti with a tennis racket and there's there's silly things happening constantly and there's the other kind of cook but yeah um and it's worth noting as well actually that wilder and to get those five feet of film he he didn't protect himself in terms of shooting. He avoided shooting close-ups unless absolutely necessary. Because apparently this was a thing at the time. Again, this is in the this would be the late 50s, early 60s, where a lot of directors would have only had first cut privilege on a film. So what would happen is a studio head like Selznick would come in and would be like, okay, well, you're going to cut, cut, cut here. Uh, what Wilder had discovered as a director was the best way to protect yourself from that it's sort of thing. Only shoot certain amounts It's to only shoot exactly what you were going to use. So when they're like, okay, but now we want a close-up on his face here. You're like, well, we don't have that, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to use it the way that I put it together, um, which I quite like. It's a wonderful sort of like Billy Wilder revel in the studio system sort of thing. So that's when he's quite cynical. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked. <laughs> it worked very well. Um, actually, in terms of, because we kind of brought this up a little bit earlier on, we were talking about like the difference between 
Baxter and, and Kubelik and, and how Baxter sees himself and kind of like what kind of man he is and, and whether he's kind of coming to terms with kind of Kubelik as a woman who's having an affair and who's not like, you know, necessarily like the stereotypical idea of this kind of romantic princess that, you know, he'd been conditioned or kind of grown up to kind of want or expect. Is it worth noting that this movie positioning itself on the cusp of like the the 50s and the 60s? That there seems to be, and again, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but if there's a sense of push and pull between the two. Because one of the things that I think about, and obviously, again, this is one of those things that is only obvious in hindsight, but things like the um, the sequence in which he's looking at the mirror and sees his craft reflection. He's trying on the hat and trying to find a way to make the hat look good. Yeah. While at the same time in American culture, the hat was in massive decline. It was seen as yeah. a representative of a kind of declining class. The same year um, that this was released there would be the stories of, again, this is an apocryphal story. Um, and I don't know if you guys know this, but it, it is apocryphal. It didn't happen, but it became a myth that uh, Kennedy didn't wear a hat at his inauguration. And as a result, hat sales plummeted. What actually happened is that uh, Kennedy was one of the rare presidents who didn't wear hats at social functions just in general. He did wear it at his inauguration. Uh, but hat sales have been in decline since the late 20s, but they yeah. dropped significantly in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s as well. And wearing hats was seen as being kind of something that was outdated. Especially a bowler hat as yeah. well. The junior executive model, it just <laughs> felt very, like, you know, because he's asking her opinion, like, is this how I should wear it? And, yeah. um, is this what a man looks like? And this it, is post kind of René Marguerite and like his use of the, the bowler hat to kind of symbolize that kind of um, anonymity yeah. um, and kind of conformity and where where it had been kind of a a mark of of of, of status sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 where and and then became this um thing that you spoof yeah 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 where Some, where yeah of mockery and i suppose it gets used by the the um then in um the avengers not those avengers <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the different avengers the ones that we covered with <laughs> the one on the bottom 100 <laughs> yeah not yeah. the one on the top 100 <laughs> it is worth noting actually just in terms of that uh, robert Krup, Krupwich has argued that like his his theory about what killed hats and I kind of love this um, is that what I he love that you've done research on this. <laughs> <laughs> what Robert Krup- Robert Krupwich argues uh, killed the hat in American culture is actually the Eisenhower invention of freeways and the advent of like commuting to work in a car because the logic was if you were on a train or if you were on a bus you had a lot more headspace so you could travel while wearing a hat whereas if you're in a car. It's harder to wear a hat in a car because the ceiling is lower. And it's even more... convertible as well. Yeah. Or a stovepipe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, so, and it obscures your vision while you're yeah. driving as that well. That was the advent of the sunroof. <laughs> <laughs> so that you could wear your hat while driving. That was sadly a last ditch effort to save the hat. It didn't quite yeah. work out. So, and I, that's I, how sunroofs were born. Yeah. Highways um, killed the hat store. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought this was an interesting <laughs> anecdote. I thought it was nice and sort of tangentially related to. But like throughout this, you have this idea of, and again, I'm maybe reading too much into it, but this idea of culture becoming gradually more kind of liberal and yeah. kind of like you're escaping yeah. the stray jackets of the Eisenhower era, where you have like, and again, this would be a huge influence it's on things like that. Not a cautionary tale. No, not at all. About the, the, <laughs> having the, affairs with married people. Yeah, in it's the sympathetic 60s. to her. Yeah, yeah like. It's it's you didn't have a film up until this point, or at least a a kind of a film this popular that broadly made it a sort of given that people have affairs 
all the time. People have sex have in general. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. They're not going to play cards in the, yeah. the in the apartment. They're going to have sex. Yeah. And it, it was 1959, 1960. And the the fact that that's the premise of a romantic comedy, a, a popular romantic, romantic comedy, is huge. The, the idea that the girl you love is actually having sex with someone else. Yeah. It's been introduced to the office. And it's like, oh, just so you know, Everyone's saddling each other. <laughs> Have you tried this new sex thing? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. They brought it back um, from Europe after the Second World War. It is amazing. Yeah, and I, I feel for, for that? Baxter that he's the one person who's like, oh, that sounds great. Am I going to get to do any of that myself? Probably not. No. <laughs> was, it, um, was it, again, another very wry Billy Wilder line about being taken serious as an artist, which is like, I could be taken seriously by the French if I shot a film with incoherent dialogue that was slightly out of focus, uh, which I kind of, I love how pithy he was about these things. Um, but no, no, it is. Um, Wilder, notably, again, that description, he wanted to make a movie about sex. Like a large part of making The Apartment was wanting to make a movie about people who were having sex. That was what the seven letter word was. <laughs> Thank you, <Andrew. laughs> Begins with F, ends with G. Filming. <laughs> it was a very, very different film. But it is, and it's remarkably candid and non-judgmental. An they don't make a big deal of it. They're not, you know, no. it's, it's not like you're being judgmental of Kubelik and, and... It's not like, say, Forrest Gump, which was released, what, Gosh. 34 years later yeah. and was still incredibly judgmental about things like having sex with it's people like, who weren't your one true love and in inverted commas. Get oh. Yeah, that's exactly. it exactly, yeah. It's like, hey, 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 Baxter, I want to use your apartment for this thing. It feels great. Um, I just want to do it all the time. Um, um, but yeah, no. Sorry. But it is, it's kind of, it's remarkable that, and again, it's a G-rated film, which is astounding to me, even now watching it, because it is so, you know, I mean, we talked about how it's humanist and it's warm and it's loving, but it is so dark in places and it's so candid about things like sex. Like I, you know, sex, suicide, even there's even a joke that hinges on abortion as well. When, uh, when, uh, Carl, the taxi driver comes in to pick up Fran, Fran. Yeah. Our Marlon Brando impersonator. Our Marlon Brando impersonator, uh, because of all the action, um, <laughs> action. And, and he comes in like, how's the patient? And then there's the little thing of like, Hey, say, what kind of doctor are you? You know, like, Oh no, 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 no not that kind. So I just took some sleeping pills and just, what did you mean? It was a, like, Oh, it's a little, something simple. It happens all the time. And yeah. the illusion, the, they allude to abortion. I think in yeah. that, in that moment, no, like, Christmas tree, yeah. Christmas tree. It is really dark. Um, and again, it's G-rated as well, which is kind of interesting. Again, it, again, that kind of speaks, I think, it's perhaps a, to the, the weird thing that exists in American kind of and film censorship in general, where it's like, you know, how do you legally measure some content in this way? Because this feels like a movie that has a lot of that stuff, despite not all in the kind of witty dialogue. It's it's just the it's 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 so it, it's just suggested as well, like the you know like. Um, had to take Sylvia to the drive-in and I'm too old for that I mean in a Volkswagen um, and the you know I hate I love to take advantage of, of you like I did yesterday in bed yeah. I, love, like, I love that I like, shot of him with the, with the Volkswagen when he pulls up to the apartment later on as well again that's your incongruous like 1950s meet 1960s thing where you have him driving his nephew's Volkswagen and looking really uncomfortable you're by Nazis yeah. oh well we're going to circle yeah, back yeah, to that he's... point <laughs> I actually have notes on that point Andrew yeah, oh do you <laughs> 
The um, sorry, I, and then this conversation just got a lot darker. I remember thinking about how he's like a, a taxi driver who's coming up the stairs of like this apartment to grab this woman who's been kind of uh, who's who's had uh, 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 sex in exchange for money. Um, yeah, and and, and thinking mis- of him looking in yeah. in the crack mirror saying. <laughs> Um, you talking to me? Yeah. Um, uh, the missing link. That, I love the idea of the apartment as the missing link between, like, was it on there the waterfront, on the waterfront, and taxi driver. There it's it like is. The yeah. midpoint between the two of them, right there. And what? Jack Lemon and Harvey Keitel, you know, blend into each other. So exactly. <laughs> and but that being the idea that he has of what's of happening, Baxter. Yeah, of yeah. what's happening in Baxter's apartment, it is worth noting. It's been described as this has been described as one of the great New York movies. Um, Oh, yeah. And in terms of, again, this is where you mentioned Taxi Driver. Is New York a character? <laughs> in this, yeah, to use a cliche, to use a cinematic cliche. But it, it's it, the, the I, I, in the, in the Sex in the City quiz, like, which one are you? I keep getting New, New York. York. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it is, it's been argued that it's very much in the style of those sort of films. Again, because you know, when you mentioned Taxi Driver, Taxi Driver, oddly enough, is a comparison that keeps coming up in discussions of this movie, which isn't really? less surreal than you would imagine it being. Because it's this portrayal of a New York that is kind of changing and yeah. kind of like going through this evolution. Because, I mean, it, it's interesting you have, you mentioned this idea of like these, you know, sort of like Mad Men style business executives and stuff like that. And this is where the Volkswagen comes in, Andrew. So I hope you're happy. You Excellent. sort of teed up both of these. Um, but you have this, what's interesting is that Wilder uh, it was Jewish. And we kind of mentioned this in Double Indemnity, how Wilder's Jewishness is largely absent from a lot of his films outside of Stella 17. The apartments. There we go. Yeah, that's it exactly. So so much Yiddish in it all the way through. And the, the apartment building, it's, it's Mrs. Leibowitz is the landlady. Um, who she uses up the Cape Canaveral. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you have the Dreyfus's next door as well. Uh, be a mensch. Um, but you have this sort of like this. Him with the no napkins. <laughs> 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 Which is, yeah, perhaps Mrs. Dreyfus is the one character who takes it a little bit too far in terms of being a broadly drunk. Sorry. But you know, you know that the, because um, obviously, again, this is this is the, the changing of the studio system and the guards and stuff like that, where a lot of the people who are running the studios would have been Jewish, but they would have conspicuously erased Jewishness from film. Mm. The point where apparently when Wilder and Diamonds showed the script to the studio and they were like, what, you want, you want to put a Jewish doctor in this? They're like, yeah. It's like, Okay, I guess you can put a Jewish doctor in it. We have some suggestions. Groucho Marx. That was apparently the note that he got from the studio when it came to casting Dreyfus. It's like, can you cast Groucho Marx in the role of Dreyfus, please? Almost. <laughs> I feel like Groucho <laughs> could have maybe yeah. played this. Yeah, <laughs> just sort of toned down. But and he he was the comedy as well in the laughs in the in the trailer. It's kind of like um, what is it? It's like Martha, he's at it again. Um, uh, yeah, which is great. But I mean, uh, it's been argued that again, this is the thing. Outside of Stellick Seventeen, this is one of the few films in Wilder's filmography to actually focus on on you know significant Jewish characters, in particular like a Jewish community in uh, New York or a Jewish community in America in general. And this is one of the things where. It's also notable, for example, that the the driving of the Volkswagen by one of the men who is exploiting Baxter, to pick an example, the fact that he's really disappointed that he has to go to the Guggenheim Museum. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's yeah, I don't like to have to appreciate that kind of culture, apparently, either. But it, it, what I'm wondering is, in terms of this being a Christmas movie, um, is the use of the Jewish characters, and in particular the use of the Chinese restaurant as well, 
because there's that old joke about New York, that, which is like, where do Jewish people have Christmas dinner? And the answer is in a Chinese restaurant um, to reflect the idea of how multicultural and how much a melting pot. What a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a straightforward quiz question. <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> like, it's like, where I'll do, take stereotypes for 500. Where, where do Japanese people have, have uh, uh, Christmas? Yeah, exactly. KFC. Oh, where, um, and, um, you cannot get a seat in a KFC in Japan on Christmas. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. So the idea is, or in or in a Chinese restaurant in New York at Christmas. Oh, but yeah. So, but apparently, like that's the, and it's interesting that like a lot of the sequences in the film outside of the office and the apartment take place at the Chinese restaurant as well. But the focus on say the Jewish community, and again, it's worth noting that for Dreyfus, like Christmas Eve is just another working night. It turns that's out, like, being. yeah, and and even for the landlady who comes up on Christmas Day and go, what was all that racket? <laughs> Having a party at Christmas. <laughs> So yeah, so it is very much like, a, I wonder if that's something the film's getting at with regards to Christmas, because you have this idea of the Jewish outsiders, you have this idea of like Dreyfus who's working on Christmas Eve, the landlady who's like, what's this racket you're having on Christmas Eve? This isn't a regular, this is just a working day, you know, that sort of thing. But you have even like the use of the Chinese restaurant as well. And you have this idea of maybe, and again, this is it tying into it being, you know, for me, I think a really great Christmas movie is that it's a movie about people who are left out at Christmas, if that makes sense, who are forgotten, who don't have the Sheldrake family Christmas. Because you have that juxtaposition when he rings up the Sheldrake residence on Christmas Day. And it's like, (laughs) and again, I don't know if this is just because it was like, I was focused. Now it's flying into the flies because it's uh, (laughs) the propagating in orbit. Hey, Dad. Yeah, it's like um, maybe maybe we should put two flies in so that they can propagate when yeah. when they slip the bondy uh, the surly bonds of bondy surls bondy surls of birth. Uh, I do love that the Sheldrake's like, who taught you about sex? I only learned about it last week. Yes. Propagate, yeah, multiply, yeah. Yeah. Good oh, stuff, yeah. son. Yeah. Tip off the old block. Um, and it's and like, and you can have a fly at home back on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> um, what happens in space stays in space. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even even that, the Sheldrake thing. And again, this is, I don't know if it's Darren reading too much into it because it was like, hats, Kennedy, Eisenhower, 1959, <laughs> 60s. But it's like the little <laughs> postcard that he has from um, Sheldrake yeah. with the picture of the family together oh, reminds me inexplicably of like that Nixon stuff in the 50s when he was guilty of taking money and his response was, well, look at Checkers here. Nice, wholesome family. The kids, they just love Checkers. I couldn't give that dog away for the world. Um, and I kind of, and maybe it's because Fred McMurray looks a little bit like Nixon with the hair and the sort of like the puffy cheeks. But that kind of Sheldrake family. It's like Nixon with makeup. <laughs> Not boppy and sweaty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Nixon, he would have, he would, he, yeah. Nixon he, who's had time to do prep. Yeah, he would have been president earlier. Yeah, Maybe if he none looked of like that Sheldrick. stuff would have happened. Yeah. Um, and by the way, the casting of Fred McMurray is great here. Um, and McMurray apparently, like, and again, it's great because my dad happened to wander in while I was watching it. It was like, that's the nutty professor. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, like he'd been betrayed. Like his childhood had been almost erased or destroyed I mean, by the idea of Fred. 67 Nutty Professor. Yeah. Uh, of yeah. like watching Fred Mc... Was it 67? I thought it might have been... Oh, no, wait. I'm thinking of Dr. Doolittle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one best picture. Yeah. Jerry Lewis was Dr. Doolittle. Oh, Dr. Doolittle. Nutty Professor. Okay. What was Fred McMurray then? To the fact machine. Also known as iPhones. Yes. <laughs>
Flubber. I, I'm going to guess it's Flubber. <laughs> Fred McMurray was in Flubber. Uh, the absent-minded professor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. This, this would be in my top five if, if it had some Flubber in it. Um, yeah. uh, and we're back from the fact machine. Turns out that no, in fact, actually, you're right. Fred McMurray was not in The Nutty Professor. He was in The Absent-Minded Professor from 1961. Um, so, yes, that was the one that my was, dad was thinking about. Were they, uh, 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 were they released at the same time? <laughs> like well, a like, kind of an ants in a book life? Yeah. Um, um, Armageddon and Deep Impact of like mad Nemo professor movies. Tale. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Noshy and absent-minded. Only <laughs> yeah. just two types. Yeah, that, those are our two grades, professor here. But again, Dad was saying, and again, my three sons and stuff like that. He was on as well at the same time. So this idea my dad had watching Fred McMurray growing up as this wholesome all-American type, and it's like, no, he's off boning the elevator lady. Fred McMurray, as you've never seen him before. <laughs> another another point made in the trailer. <laughs> Does it actually say that? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And then <laughs> it, it, it has it it has him then saying. Um, Oh, you um, uh, bone a few of these girls and suddenly they think uh, you're going to leave uh, your wife. Is that fair? That seems unfair to me. Um, um, it's worth noting, by the way, that again... Oh, it's certainly unfair. <laughs> Especially to your wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's worth noting, by the way, again, this gets down to this idea of being a mensch and the idea of culture and the idea of how pervasive it is and the idea of Baxter trying to be a man is that later on when he's talking with Dreyfus, he uses the exact same line and he like mimics. Because again, yeah. there's this idea of like the men who run the company, including people played by my favorite Martian, Ray Walston, uh, but setting the tone for like how men behave and how Baxter measures his masculinity. These are like his role models. Yeah, that's, these are the men he wants to be. He opens the movie saying, I'm not ambitious. But but this uh, story is one of an of of ambition. So if these are the kind of the the uh, if this is where you're going, the, you start kind of talking the same way and saying wise, yeah. um, yeah, like kind yeah. of that's the that's way the cookie crumbles, crumbles, cookie wise, cookie wise, yeah, yeah. And you have this idea of like emulating this idea of, and again, this gets back to that theme we were talking about there about being a mensch, where like it's. Wilder believes that people can be good, but that there's a pervading influence, kind of like. And again, this is like the double indemnity type thing as yeah. well. But it's this idea that it's old insurance movies. That's it exactly, and and very fixated on this <gasps> idea. The insur- oh yeah, the Walter Neff and the insurance yeah. connection. Yeah. And this idea of reducing everything to numbers and statistics. Like, I mean, even in the yeah. opening like narration, you have him talking about there being so many people living in New York that you could stack them head to toe and reach Karachi, for example. And talk about how many people work on each of the floors and how carefully all the end times have been staggered yeah. so that the machine can operate efficiently and people can get down without crowding the lifts and stuff like that. You have this idea of it being a system and there being little room for humanity. I think that was a big thing about like the American culture at that time as well, because it was... It, that's that was a quite a modern um perspective of american society at that time which was so corporate driven post-war uh value systems of being part of a system that you were defined by the job that you were in and that your your reason to be is to to go to work and be part of a, a you know a, a working force and being um being this kind of person because this kind of person is successful and and it, you know it's it's the idea that you give a lot of value of your life to uh corporation which is which is essentially what 
people classify as the American dream, you know, join a company, yeah. stay there for life and, and car in the driveway, mortgage on the house, two and a half kids going mm. to college and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And yet it's, uh, it's it, the reason it's, it's stood the test of time is because that has, that, that perspective has continued to evolve and, and, and remain as part of what the American dream is part of what, uh, the value that we consistently give to our lives is how what where our name is on the door and you know how we break down people to numbers instead of being present in your life and and being being a mensch caring about other things but giving more value to other things as opposed to the job you're in and the reason you're there even on on those terms it's worth noting that baxter knows kubelik best from her file he so knows, kind of creepy. which is very creepy, very, very, very yeah. creepy. This is, this is, we must remember this is a uh, uh, pre May 2018, it's, it's before GDPR. Oh, he's a keeper, that guy. Don't tell uh, the guys about how you know about my appendix being out. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of rather we had slept together (laughs) (laughs) than you knew it that way. Then having read my credit history and see my weight, height, uh, (laughs) social security number, where I live, who I live with. And yeah, yeah, it's totally normal. And he didn't know she was dyslexic. (laughs) But yeah, no. Well, yeah, I don't know if that would have been measured on the file, actually, at the time. Yeah. I I didn't know that she had flunked the, uh, the, 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 the typing exam. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's maybe he's a gentleman. He only read the first three pages. The one script, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the entire, entire of the apartment. But that was I, all he needed. <laughs> was, yeah. But um, I yeah, I do. I think there is something in that though. And again, like you're you're right, it is very. And watching it again, there was a real like, well, Baxter, um, maybe not the you know doing it Are, like. I know it is. The, the, yeah, it's it's it, a product um, of a different time and stuff. Yeah, and I think I think with Jack Lemon. The way it comes across is kind of like it it's it's a forgivable kind of naivety. Yeah. Like she is kind of looking at him saying, Oh, you you I mean he's probably read everybody else's file as well. Yeah. It's not creepy stalkerish, <laughs> it's just, you know, creepy obsessive he's really. He's just interested in uh, numbers. Insurance numbers. Yeah, that's and, exactly uh, like he's probably he probably knows everybody's file. Yeah. That's why he has a little graph on New Year's Eve where he's like, I thought I'd put this through, I mapped it out. You know, your massive insurance risk there, oh, Mr. Yeah, Shelter. Yeah, the, the, the insurance risk with, the, with all, you know, all these women you need, need, need to get married and get pregnant right away. I, I love as well he's talking about, well, actually, there's um, kind of, he, he lists kind of how many people there are in the company. So, like, uh, um, statistically speaking, <laughs> these four uh, men, it's really, it's really not such a uh, Oh, yeah, it's about the morality. <laughs> and then it's later, it's like four or five. What's the difference? I mean, statistically wise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but again, and you have this idea of, yeah, by measuring the idea that you get an individuals lost in those numbers because yeah. obviously if you reduce somebody down to their role and again those wonderful shots those wide angle shots of people working in the office with anonymous drones but filing in and filing out with the clock and stuff like that but this idea that if you do that you end up kind of like sapping any humanity out of it and you have to you know the key is to be a person and not a number or a statistic or, or a desk a, or that's a, yeah or a job title even yeah. to pick an example and it makes this kind of they're they're all in this kind of um uh, economic system and it, it's kind of taken the the humanity out of it where where instead of um where instead of giving her a present 
he oh he, he gives her a hundred a hundred dollar bill um and it, it, it it's 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 an, buy yourself something nice we wish we had seen this movie earlier because the, the the we used to give our guests a hundred dollar bills they felt cheapened um, <laughs> so, so now we, we stopped get, doing it yeah. we get specific bespoke presents <laughs> yeah. um but yeah and, and it is actually it captures that sense of like anonymity as well because it's not just the corporation it's the city as well because you have this idea of everybody being anonymous and even like the the Dreyfuses, um and like he knows them by name but as far as they're concerned all they hear are the sounds through the wall mm-hmm. it's so, all the impression of you make of each other and yeah. the like even down to the <clears throat> there's very few locations other than the office and the apartment but yeah. there's the bar and there's the chinese, chinese restaurant. restaurant and it, the whole point about going there is that you slip into an- anonymity yeah and you forget who you are and no one sees you and it, they're, they're i mean even in his apartment well. he's anonymous yeah yeah that's it like even in his apartment there's no way to distinguish between him and anybody else there's the wonderful line where he's like meeting the woman at the bar and uh, miss mcdougall i think it is and yeah. her, her response is you know it's a terrible thing to come home to an empty apartment on a night like this he says i said i didn't have any family i didn't say an empty apartment <laughs> uh, which again is one of those wonderfully hilarious but bleakly depressing sort of lines god yeah and it's the, the fact they, that it's christmas eve as well and and just people are out for a lonely hookup as well it's just it, there's something just really kind of um yeah it's a cynical perspective of new york and the idea that there's just there's so many people around you but no one's connecting and the the idea that most people in new york city are probably going to have christmas dinner alone or these people working away from home and uh it just is it it just felt really yeah it, it is a very dark perspective of a big metropolis a lot of people working in that in that week between Christmas and New Year's as well, which you point out, like the yeah. calendar being slightly skewed. I'm not sure it's entirely intentional, but the idea that yes, even between Christmas and New Year's, where you have that kind of like Christmas party, which yeah. again has that. Where the boys at NYC, <laughs> the boys at the NYPD band were playing, were singing Galway Bay, and the bells were ringing out, Andrew. Yes, for Christmas Day. Um, but um, you have like you have this, and again, even that has this sort of like sense of like the walls are going to come down, the sense of propriety is breaking. Again, and part of me wonders if you know, the end of the Eisenhower era to a certain extent, where things are getting just a little bit <laughs> wild and a little bit loose. There's conga lines, there's dancing, there's inappropriate smoking to bring in the 250 familiar yeah. trope that we have from classic movies. Get out of here, Ike. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby's where it's at. Yeah. Um, and again, like it's, it's worth noting, it's, somebody pointed out, I think it was the Museum of Modern Art, said that you know if you want to measure how perfectly uh, this movie captured that transition between the late 50s and early 60s, it's worth noting that like Marlon Monroe, um, who apparently campaigned for the role uh, in this, she campaigned for the Fran. Really? Uh, yep, yeah, for the Fran Kubelik role. I was apparently turned down by Wilder, who apparently did not enjoy working with her on uh, Some Like It Hot. Well, very few people did, yeah. Yeah. You listen to like Laurence Olivier talking about working with um, with um, Marilyn Monroe as well, and he talks about like how um, uh, delightful um, she 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 was, and how fond of of her um, he was, and he tells kind of all of these stories about the the um, her um, asking kind of uh, the, the she was she was married to um, was it Arthur Miller and. Um, uh, talking to his family and, and saying like I, I like the matzo balls but what's wrong with the rest of the matzo <laughs> why do they only eat the balls but that, it was her it was her um, 
her kind of wish. But yeah. it, but it, but it, but him, it, Lawrence Olivier also saying kind of like, she, but it, but she was like terrible to work with, like so kind of um, un unprofessional and kind of unreliable. It's a real, real kind of a shame. Yeah. Um, but apparently, like, Wilder turned her down for the role here. He also felt that she was too beautiful um, to play the role of, of Frank Kubelik. Uh, but it was also even the film includes a throwaway line from Ray Walston where it's like, I've, yes. she looks just so like, like Marlon Monroe. Monroe. It's almost like they're taking the piss out of her at yeah. that moment. But that actress who was trying to do a Marlon Monroe mm, impression. impression. <laughs> um, but even, even then you have, but like, at, if you want to point how well the times are changing, like by the time the film was released, you know, your next election was going to elect a president who would be having his own afternoon quickies with Marlon Monroe in the White House. Right. Um, and you want to sort of like, you want to capture a moment in film. That's very much kind of what you're going with there. Yeah, of course he's <laughs> having an affair with Marilyn Monroe. is kind of... Well, I mean, Ike wasn't. I don't imagine like Ike Eisenhower. No, yeah, I mean, but that's why you got to get rid of Ike. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Ike. Goodbye. I like Ike, but I like I the still like Ike. <laughs> but I like the idea that Andrew's like ballot for president of the United States is like, can I imagine them sleeping with Marla Monroe in the White House? <laughs> That's like your qualification for the job. It's like yeah. no to Richard Nixon. That's <laughs> just modernity. Yeah. Later, That's yeah. Later. <laughs> it's like you know, in nineteen fifty eight in nineteen fifty six I asked, Can I imagine this president wearing a bowler hat? And I voted for Ike. In nineteen sixty I asked myself, Can I imagine this president having an affair with Marlon Monroe? And I voted for Kennedy. The way these things swing. But like that would almost disqualify you from being president. That you'd almost get impeached for, <laughs> for, not, for, for not having an affair. Or people disappointed that it wasn't specifically Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> um, I don't know. But uh, yeah, so like, again, it's it's kind of yeah, just sort of interesting in, in that and sort of marking the kind of transition between um, American values and that nuclear family yeah. trope to it it being a much more. For, you know for one of a better expression progressive society where you know it was the sexual revolution and you know that probably did factor into a, a lot of, of their openness of, of what they're doing all the way through yeah. the film yeah and it, and it is it's it's a remarkably kind of open film in those sense well it's absolutely candid about what is going on they're not playing checkers um <laughs> in the apartment um, and again, like this sort of, again, the sense of anonymity and stuff like that. And the fact that nobody know even his neighbors don't know that it's not him yeah. doing all this stuff as well. And how strange that must be, you know, how like he doesn't even have his own place. His apartment yeah. isn't his apartment. He doesn't have a, like a place that belongs to him in the world. So in this city of God knows how many million people, you know, enough mm -hmm. that you could stack them head to toe and get all the way to Karachi. He doesn't have a little nook in the world that belongs exclusively to him. Except and his his desk in in the office, which is why he stays late. If they did stack them all the way to Karachi, he'd actually be able to <laughs> to, to, to go to his own apartment. <laughs> sleep there. there wouldn't be all these people. Oh, that's just the fantasy yeah. that he has. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so like, um, I'm not speaking hypothetically. I just, I just want to go. Um, but and again, you have this like the the metaphor early on of the cold, and which is again we joked about the sequence of the scheduling and how wonderful that is in sort of like a screwball comedy way because it is, and how wonderfully relatable it is to anybody who has worked in any job ever. It's like, are you free this? Are you free then? Can you do this? What if you do this? Um, but it's interesting how it kind of gets at how interconnected everybody is because it's one of those things where you know he sneezes and the office kind of catches a cold he has a cold and therefore everybody else's plans end up being pushed out by weeks and weeks and weeks everybody else feels the consequences there's a ripple down sort of effect going on there all right
Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about with the film? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at people? Um, I was just thinking about that that moment of you know, and I, you might know a bit more about the context of it as well. But I I do like that little kind of um, joke Billy Wilder is having when he's watching TV and you know the the. You know, first let's hear from our sponsors. sponsors. You know, before you watch Grand Hotel, and, and then our alternate sponsor, <laughs> and then turning around to to westerns and just being like, you know, static and like I'm not watching this, and yeah. But it, like, is, was that a thing that Billy Wilder actually, you know, like that the comment he was making about TV or about westerns and their popularity and it being that we're forgetting all these old great movies that were you know around in the 30s like grand hotel and there's definitely a wariness to it yeah yeah this kind of i really love that moment because it's just it takes him the exact length of time to eat his dinner dinner. as it does for the film to start yeah and while he's doing that he's just fatigued with all the westerns on tv and then he's just like christmas tree well, it's, it's, again, Wilder, I don't have any actual quotes from Wilder on that, but it's been argued, I think the Museum of Modern Art in New York uh, did a retrospective on the film. And one of their readings on this, and again, it's kind of interesting to read that in the context of, we talked about, you know, Mark Cousins saying that this is the perfect movie for television and how, why well, don't agree, that's, I don't think Rena agrees that's true either, but the idea of the widescreen, you know, and the idea that when this film would be cut down, a lot of people who would have watched it on the old 4.3 television sets, yeah. it would have been actually cut or pan and scan. So you have these talking head scenes where they'd actually be inserting cuts from one half of a cinemascope frame to the other. And like, it's interesting that Wilder... And again, this is a thing where Wilder was never beloved of the new wave. And in fact, his victory at the Oscars this year was seen as being something that nobody could make sense of because there was like if you want a more art house fair like Otto Preminger um, had a film that was in contention around this time uh, Alfred Hitchcock had done Psycho yeah. uh, in the same year as well if you wanted to do something more out there but you also had more conventional fare as well that was bubbling underneath the surface more sort of like standard studio stuff so this was a kind of seen as, a, as an odd choice from somebody who wasn't seen as being an auteur but the Museum of Modern Art in New York argued that what you have here is you actually have Wilder doing a proto kind of auteur bit of work where he's more self-referential and more self-engaged than he would have been in his earlier films and you see this sort of like idea of directors treating film as something serious even passively so you have films that are in some way commenting on films he specifically the museum modern art specifically singled out that sequence where he's watching television um as one that was you know maybe playing with the idea of watching a film on television in the late 50s and what that experience might have been like for a director who had made a film for a big screen watching it and sort of like watching the commercial interruption of it and stuff like that and watching the bad reception and the static and and it's also a good kind of a commentary about what the film is about more broadly because it's it, it, people are no longer in a cinema kind of surrounded by yeah, people yeah, yeah. or in kind of like a... a You're a, alone with your TV. A drive-in a, yeah. even, yeah. In your Volkswagen or your yeah. nephew's <laughs> Volkswagen. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're alone and watching it. But also even like they point out to things like, for example, you know, the, the extended second half feeling like something like Wilder playing with the long weekend or the lost weekend sort of thing but even things like um the the reference to marlon monroe 
uh, which is, you know, playing with this idea of the film that he had just made and which you know that he had just made with this actress who is huge and you know that he's worked with. So it's a little bit of a winking nod to himself there to a certain extent. And again, how this was unusual for a director who had been making films since the 40s and had yeah. been seen as being kind of like a steady uh, a steady studio hand or a steadio, if you will, but it's being like a reliable, like a non-artiste, non-pretentious, again, all the quotes that we have from him. Studietti. If you will. But like the <laughs> idea that he wasn't, um, he wasn't seen as being this kind of pretentious artiste. Um, and so it's interesting seeing the marks of like the new wave creeping in yeah. and this, you know, what we would come to recognize as new Hollywood later on in the decade in the sixties, but seeing little indicators of that here in a film that is, by the way, last best picture winner shot in black and white uh, until the artist and Schindler's list. Ah. That's an interesting piece of trivia about this from 1960. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's the last one. Except for Except two. Except for these other two. Oh, no, okay. But, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it's the point at which the Academy yeah, stops yeah. treating no, no, black no. and white as the de facto yeah, way yeah. of making films, if that makes sense. Or as like, as the default. You know, yeah. it's it's the point at which colour stops being a novelty. I suppose colour was, at that point, uh, mostly in westerns and musicals. musicals and big epics. And then it started to percolate a little bit more into everything. Um Although I'm not a scholar on the subject, but yeah, no, it's it, it actually it is interesting because when you look at the film, it has that old fifties kind of look about the cinematography because of the black and white. But it and is nineteen sixty and, and stuff, and the camera doesn't necessarily move a lot. There's a lot of, sort of static shots and stuff. It's it is shot rather old fashioned in terms of framing and so. And I can like I can understand that's why people like cousins are like you could imagine this is a stage play, except you can't really because you would miss things like the desk. In fact, Wilder apparently did consider him typing away. Yeah. The way the way his kind of head is moving yeah. along with us, like the, the, that 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 require kind of the the camera to be watching yeah, yeah. and stuff like that, and even things like the the forced perspective and stuff like that. I mean, Wilder did apparently consider Wilder and Diamond did consider adapting it for stage, but their impression was that you would not be able to get the contrast that you needed between yeah. the anonymous office and the claustrophobic set. As well, casting giants. <laughs> oh, in the foreground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, to really force perspective. Yeah, oh, that's super I, forced perspective. But I really want Jack Lemmon. Do <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know yeah. that to, to keep Jack Lemmon happy, um, apparently he installed a pinball machine on set. Um, really? Yeah, and apparently McLean... McLean felt that she didn't get a lot of love and respect for Wilder and that he had more of his energy focused on Lemon as an actor. Because she would say that when they were shooting scenes, what would happen is he'd ask for at most four takes of her. Um, and then it came to shooting like Lemon stuff and he'd be like, improvise, improvise, give me something, do something, be yeah, funny. Yeah. And apparently you would have Lemon go, you know, not quite Fincher level of 70 takes, but you'd be going about 40 takes. But giving but, that leisure of trying a few different things yeah. and failing and as opposed to just like, okay, just get right. Wrap before. it and cut it yeah. and we're done. Yeah. Uh, and McLean feeling that she was a bit left out as a result of that. Well, it's, it's, it's an incredible testament to her that, that she wasn't kind of given that rope and get so much out of it, out of it yeah. as yeah. a performance. Yeah. And I think there's also probably something in the fact that even if he didn't respect her as much as Lemon, who he had worked with previously. He and was who he the star at the time. Yeah, well. and he would specifically designed the film around. Yeah, like, again, did. the first thing he did was after a screen of Some Like It Hot was he said, Lemon, you're doing this. Yeah. Um, he was also a man at the time. <laughs> no, in Some Like It Hot, they had kind of... Uh, kind of a plus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was 1955. Again, Wilder, is, yeah, Wilder has, yes, unfortunately, sort of a various reputation about his treatment of, of 
actors, female actors, on his films as well. As opposed to all of the other woke uh, 50s and 60s directors. directors. Fair point, fair point. (laughs) But I mean, it it is perhaps a testament to to McLean that like she had four takes and she nailed it each time. And from his perspective, he got everything that he needed from her. Exactly, yeah. There's nothing else you need to do if you're going to nail it in in four takes and you just nail it in four takes and if to be an actress of that level at that time to to hit the ground running like that and be very risky with that role i think was fantastic yeah um and she is she's absolutely striking um she's wonderful and again the film i think is very good with her as a character she feels fully formed and developed in a way that I well the first time I watched it I was kind of wary of it being this sort of like C.C. Baxter-esque fantasy kind of you yeah. know uh, what's it the Walter Mitty style sort of thing where it's like he has this imagined fantasy life and it's like either she turns out to not be what he expects her to be and that's awful or she turns out to be exactly what he expects her to be and that's brilliant and I like the film developing her in a way where it's like she's she's neither she's a complex human being and she actually has an arc and development and she's mm-hmm. more complex than we assume her to be and she's sad and it's not a case of the girl of your dreams is going to come into your life and make you happy the girl of your dreams uh, is going to come into your life and make you miserable because she's miserable because there's a whole pile of stuff that you're now going to have to deal with because it's not that simple of falling in love and everything's going to be great all right i think that about wraps it up unless there's anything else we want to talk about anything we haven't yet discussed about the film there's probably an awful like like, like I, I i i love some of the some of the lines in this movie and i i, the dialogue I, is amazing. I wanted to write so down horrible. so much stuff but like, like i can think of even when he um you have one of his bosses is kind of walking down the stairs and is saying, why do all you girls live in Brooklyn anyway? Um, <laughs> why do all you dames live in the Bronx? Other, and it's you like, you bring other dames here. <laughs> yeah. Certainly not. I'm a happily married man. <laughs> Which is great. Um, it's so good. There's a whole host. And the, the, the line as well, it's, it's, it's similarly, like like these kind of uh, uh, walks up these brownstones are... are, are are an excuse to kind of like give these characters these fantastic, um, very funny lines. Like it's like, what about your mother? Um, well, like... from her and she's out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Which is incredible. Also, the the fact that uh, I love that uh, Kublik and Baxter call themselves by their surnames, which again gets to that sense of like anonymity yeah. and sort of the sense of not really knowing one another and stuff like that as well. And Dreyfus is Mr. and Miss, such politeness, uh, which is great. <laughs> um, but even things like the bit where he pretends to have a date with the woman who's wandering oh, out. Yeah. Because he obviously doesn't want to acknowledge. He wants to say face in yeah. front of her too and i i always find it really tragic that he could never um explain the situation to the dreyfuses next door that mm. you know at the, even at the point at the end when he comes around they got, like we got three nurses from belleville and he does you, you know you've and he asks her like what ha- say what happened to that girl oh you know me with girls easy come easy go and you're just like just tell him what happened. It's <laughs> your saying, friend. Oh, and don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'm going to be giving my, my body to uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Columbia. Or, yeah. This part of the tragedy of the role is that like, he's not even having sex and he's just, yeah, his neighbors think he's a dick. <laughs> God damn it. He's so nice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, no, it is. It's, and it's absolutely fantastically written and wonderfully witty as well. Again, the script from a uh, ILA diamond as well. Who worked with a? He was Romanian-born as well, um, and he worked with uh, Wilder from throughout his career. I think they sort of began collaborating uh, with um, after Love in the Afternoon, 
and with the lone exception 1957's witness for the prosecution they worked together throughout their careers in fact uh wilder's talked about how he feels that i think it was during the oscars um he said should i go and should i lay a little rose on the seat where he used to sit in my office uh when we were writing these things while we watched them while i watched the oscars it's like oh that's kind of sweet Incredible physical comedy as well with the with the with the nose spray firing away in the Gross. air, uh, or even <laughs> and, the, and then him spraying it on on the flower yeah. as well, yeah. Or even the um the obviously the the tennis racket and the spaghetti yes. as well, which is great and it's so wonderfully like lively and sort of infectious and these little moments of joy. This guy again, this idea of like an improvised existence, yeah. the idea of you haven't been and again this ties back into what you're talking about, like even romantically the theme of the woman you love not arriving at the moment that's perfect yeah. or whatever, or not even being perfect. Yeah. It's the point at which you not you, even in love with you, in love with someone else is completely wrong with her. Yeah. Wrong for her. But the idea that you you find these things and you make them work somehow. Yeah. So if you don't have a colander, you use a tennis racket. Tennis racket, by the way, not a great colander. Have you tried? <laughs> it? Have you tr- like, well, no. Like we see in in the movie, it it's it's another work. it's another two fifty trope of food waste. We see that some <laughs> falls down. He does a and good he, job of trying to kind of get it back. Good yeah. improv with the yeah. singing, yeah. and it's, it makes it a funny Tremendous. moment. But you know, as a, as, a, as a technique, it's like just strain it over the sink. Come on. <laughs> I love the idea that was take 32 while there was just throwing increasingly improbable items at him. It's like, I want you to use now a hurley. Use a hurley. Um, it's like golf club. Can you make He's a golf silly club? Silly Darren. <laughs> Never use the hurley. No. Uh, okay. Maybe fine. for stirring it. <laughs> Actually, on a very side note, I was, I, I had a whole sidebar with the fella last night about the, the, the particular sock drying uh, implements. Oh, yes. I was like, didn't keep, the argyle socks to keep them in the in shape and like we, we don't have those anymore we just you know go to pennies and get new ones and it just it, this is this is a bigger point than i thought it would be but i just you know i just love the idea that you would wash your socks with that much care and in darn, the 50s. Them. darn them darn them yeah I mean, well, this is the thing when you're watching this stuff, it becomes almost like an act of kind of historical anthropology. Explain what darning is. <laughs> I know <laughs> what darning is. For younger listeners. Like VHS is. It's like when we have to explain VHS on the podcast for listeners. Um, make us all feel old. Um, but uh, no, but I mean, like that's the thing with these, with certain types of older films is they feel almost like anthropology where it's like, even the bit where he has the Coke and he has the little, uh, on the wall, he has the little bottle opener. And oh, it's yeah. one of those really strange things where I can't imagine like wanting to open a bottle that often that I would need to install something on my well, wall to make me. Have a a little, I, I, I have one of those. On do you have fridge. like a uh, no I know yeah, but like, the one you take off and you use that's fine but the one on no, the no you did like you, the, just you, one one handed bottle opener one handed bottle opener okay yeah you, you, you've really not been living <laughs> <laughs> using both of your hands like a sucker but I mean yeah things like that that darning implement and sort of like how little, much like, time you'll save now <laughs> <laughs> you can double your efficiency at least when it comes to opening bottle openers yeah you could be in a top 10% of efficiency <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I mean even things like that get that promotion Darren. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it is fascinating just watching these things and again like for audiences watching at the time they would have been oh well, that's just a regular sock shaper i guess is what we call it but for us it's like well that's a really strange alien implement it's like and that's what microwave little meals look like in the 1950s yeah, yeah. Well, it's just it's just a plate wrapped in tinfoil <laughs> with a little fork sticking out of it which is kind of sad and lovely and kind of yeah it's nostalgic it's like 
I know that this is meant to be really sad, but that looks kind of space age. <laughs> it's like, this looks like the future retro in 1959. Yeah, retro futurism. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is 1959. The future's coming. You are living the best life there. Let me tell you, Mr. Yeah. Baxter. Chester. I don't make microwave meals. <laughs> Because it's easy. <laughs> we we'll do make... it because it is hard. Okay. <laughs> and, and we will have tinfoil <laughs> meals we'll... in, in this front deca- of the television <laughs> in with this a remote deca- control. And further too. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> and do was. other things. <laughs> but yes. Um, so I think that about wraps it up. Unless there's anything else you want to talk about with the apartment. Anything else that kind of jumped out at people? Anything else that kind of struck them? This time I noticed that the ice had not melted in the, the the bucket of champagne for quite a long time. Even after another suicide scare, uh, the, the ice remained in transit in the Volkswagen till he, till he came up and butted up. In he the, put it, did he put it in the fridge? Because if he put it in the freezer, the, surely the bottle would have ice like that anymore. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the... the, the um... kind of got new ice. Yeah. <laughs> rotated through like, those old fifties uh, ice cubes uh, were like properly built by men. Yeah. Yeah. We used to make We used to make food here, yeah, yeah. but um, I love the idea that yeah. I mean, you know, oh, I, used, I love the idea that he's so sad he's packing, but he's I was done all given the prep this work. This ice cube like, by my father, <laughs> and, and I father. hope to give it to my son. Yeah, yeah. his father before him. <laughs> this ice cube came all the way from the old country. Um, <laughs> but I love the idea. I love the idea that you know he's packing up and getting ready to go, and sort of like getting ready to to wander. And again, the Jewish Chronicles written an article about Baxter as the wandering Jew. Is he he's like is he this broad commentary, which I'm not entirely sure that I buy, but I kind of it's an interesting read on it. But I, I love he's an interesting interesting read that you didn't buy <laughs> Darren Andrews like he normally buys these things with clients um, what's too far for Darren but the idea that yeah he's kind of he's an assimilated Jew to a certain extent because he's living in a Jewish ghetto he doesn't have a Jewish surname yeah, but the idea yeah. that he is kind of welcome and he's and not accept- familiar with like Jewish Yiddishism yeah. so you got the assumption that he's not Jewish he's very much the outsider wasp in in know, the community almost sort of like suggesting he's misplaced because he's yeah. a you know a white waspy kid from uh, from Cincinnati. Isn't Cincinnati he's from? I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. He makes reference to the place he he shot himself, and yeah. uh, but yeah, like that that he he doesn't have that kind of uh, you know he's asking Doctor Dreyfus about like you know what what does that no I don't know what that means what does it mean it means be a man. But yeah. Uh, also, I mean, just in, in context, I feel like you can ask, what does that mean? Just be a mensch. It's like, yes, I understand it means man. What does it mean in this context? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, the um, I and believe he understood. <laughs> he understood very well then. What he became a mensch because yeah. it, he he wasn't told a, a, a exactly what it meant in the way that he expressed it later to. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and again, the, the Jewish Chronicle's observation was that at the end, he's kind of dispossessed and he becomes like a wandering Jewish man. So maybe he embraces a Jewish. I don't know. It's a bit of a stretch, even for me. But I quite I thought the article was quite interesting. But I love the idea that while he's packing up and being all forlorn and making sure that he puts the gun in the box properly, <laughs> that he.
that he's gone. What's he's in like, the box? <laughs> just stick that in the box anywhere. Yeah, just sort of drop it there. It'll be casual. Um, but I love the idea that, you know, he's taking the time to properly make new ice for his champagne cork. Because it's like, sure, this is going to be the most depressing New Year's ever. I've completely packed up. I'm going to be gone. I don't know where I'm going. But I'm going to have a bottle of champagne. And it's going to be in a bucket of ice. And it's going to be nice. But he shakes it up to open it like he's on an F1 podium. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's sad, I but not that sad. All right, then. I think that about wraps it up, unless there's anything else we haven't discussed or anything else we want to talk about. Oh, there's a million details I could think of, but I, I think it's it's just going to be more about Watch like, the movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, watch the movie. Yeah, there watch, is, the movie. watch it again. <laughs> the, uh, the people who right. are listening now have already seen it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pause the podcast, run out, watch it again, and come back and listen to the remaining like three and a half minutes of this podcast. All right, so thank you very much for joining us, Rita. Um, Thanks a million. And what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask guests to recommend something uh, for listeners. So if you have something that you're enjoying at the moment, it can be Christmassy, it can be non-Christmassy, it can be this movie adjacent, it can be completely random, it can be a podcast, a book, a film, a TV show, something you enjoyed, maybe something that's coming out in January, perhaps, because, you know, we've got, you know, this is when the podcast will be coming out. Uh, but we'll give you a bit of time to think about that and we'll jump straight to Andrew. Yes, um, both something that um, this movie reminded me of and also something Christmassy um, uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross a great uh, performance by Jack Lemmon and the, yes actually, yeah. yes and sort of in the same theme as well the same sort of ballpark as exactly well. corporate then, America I, uh, there's there's a very uh, funny Saturday Night Live sketch as well with um, Alec Baldwin reprising, <laughs> his, yeah, reprising his role <laughs> with the elves kind of coming in and explaining to them kind of how he's 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 got these big christmas balls um, yeah so yeah check uh, check that out as well all the saturday night live stuff is now on it's probably on, on youtube, YouTube and some moment. of it is funny statistically <laughs> speaking uh, and we'll, we'll we'll try and make sure that we include that in the show notes as well in terms of stuff that i would recommend uh, for people uh, off the top of my head because it's christmas themed and because this is a dark christmas movie batman returns best christmas movie Yes. Ever. Controversial decision. Incredible. I make. It, yeah, absolutely. It really is. It, again, like the apartment, it's a movie about being alone at Christmas. That's really fundamentally what Batman is about. And finding similarly alone uh, people, alone yeah. weird people, weird people like Baxter in an orphan. City. Yeah, we must assume <laughs> that Baxter is an orphan. Oh, that's what he's going to do after the film. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Become Batman. <laughs> I do. I love the moment in Batman Returns well, did, where the penguin the jumps on Batman uh, and he's like, "You're just jealous because I'm a real freak and you have to wear a mask." And Batman, played by Michael Keaton, is like, "You're probably right." <laughs> love Tim Burton Christmas movies. He's incredible. I love that moment in Batman Returns where he's like barreling through this tunnel in 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 the Batboat, and all of a sudden this this penguin on a rocket comes. He just like swerves, and then you see him kind of looking back. And saying, was that a penguin or a <laughs> rocket? It's <laughs> just great. Absolutely. I'm um, going to keep going. Yeah, but he's no definitely time. rubbernecking for a moment. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. And given how hard it is to turn your head in that bat suit, that's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I absolutely do. If, we're, if you're listening at Christmas time, um, I would recommend that. I think And Christopher Walken. Yes, as Max Shrek. <laughs> Never, ever forget Christopher Walken. No. 
Um, so, Renux, sorry to circle back around to you, but uh, is in terms of recommendations, something for this one? Well, I'll talk about a very specific January-bound film in a second, but it's not very Christmassy themed at all. But if you are listening at Christmas, the only thing I ever do religiously every single Christmas is have a... Apart from watching The Searchers and all of the non-Christmassy Christmas movies, I just go to mass. And, of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, uh, it's a, I'd not religiously watch an absolute massive pile of Studio Ghibli movies uh, gotta always watch many of Totoro I have to watch uh, I, I just have to watch everything like it's just it's a it's a complete Ghibli fest if I get to the end of the Christmas holidays and I can't watch all of the Ghiblis in a in in succession it's just going to be uh, it's it's not going to be a happy Christmas. Um, so if you have never experienced Studio Ghibli, I would strongly recommend it. It's just that feeling of being a kid. That's what Christmas is about. It's just feeling like you're five again. And Ponyo and Totoro specifically would be two that you can't miss. But in January, um, unless the release date is miraculously going to change in the next few months, <laughs> uh, The Lighthouse, Robert Eggers, is absolute... Um, uh, demented gem of a film that's coming out and I had the pleasure of seeing it in the first ever screening in Cannes uh, with the cast there at 8.30 in the morning and I was hung over so much um, and already feeling this in- intense uh, nihilistic uh, dark fear <laughs> and queuing for an hour in the morning in the the various different uh, hierarchical past system that they have there it's all very complex and then watching this absolute insane film about uh, two people two lighthouse keepers trapped in an island and just getting more and more intensely insane uh, but it's just a treat to endure wonderful choice of verb and Arena, as well, you have a short film that is out at the moment, film. actually. So, well, um, it's, it's sort of it's circulating at the moment. But if people want to check that out, is there a way for them to do that yet? Or? Um, I think if the best thing to do would probably be uh, go online to Facebook and uh, follow the short film "Break Us" short film or "Break Us" film, and that's a good way to figure out if there's a screening coming up in Dublin. It's going to do the festival circuit for about a year, um, and then we'll probably stick it up online after. Perfect. And um, we'll include all those details in our show notes as well. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, uh, Merry awesome. Christmas. Thank Merry you Christmas. so much, Rena. Um, that, that, that suggestion, like, it might mean that this podcast comes out in February if we're repackaging all of the Studio <laughs> Ghibli movies as Christmas movies yeah. rather than anime April. It's uh, finally yeah, an excuse yeah. to do that. We'll, no, we'll... we'll. Um, and next week, we're sort of, we're continuing our festive theme. Uh, the wonderful Graham Day will be joining us to discuss Disney's Aladdin, a new entry at the time that we're recording this. Say hi, Graham. I don't... Hi. I don't know how wonderful Graham is. Oh, no, wait, he's here. Oh, no. But yeah, so we'll be back next week. Uh, we hope you'll join us. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. God bless us, everyone. I don't know if we want to stop, but there's a spider eating a fly. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I beg your pardon. In, in, 
in the room. Oh yeah, there it is. It's not in the room. It's outside. Outside the room. The room. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I shouldn't. I shouldn't imply that there is. Oh a, my god! It's, geez, it's just devouring us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's incredible, listeners. <laughs> Nature. Um, yeah. Good. I watched I may it edit this crawl, out. Call Jesus down the. Do we yeah. want to edit this out? Do we want to? This is a Christmas episode. <laughs> yeah, it's ripping out. It's uh, it's got it's like a turkey being oh, opened it's and just, having its, it's stuffing. Well, it's not fighting anymore yet. No, it's it's uh, it's lost a sense of its nervous system. It's definitely deceased, and now it's just flailing about, being ripped apart limb by limb. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> yeah, Merry Christmas. <laughs> so are we gonna wait for it to lay eggs in the corpse, or are we gonna continue? <laughs> we're, we're just waiting for it to be entirely devoured to be like, we have to see how this saga plays out. Oh, oh it's, no, it's, 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 oh, it's making a move. It's 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 watching it. Yeah. It's wrapped it in what a twist. in in webbing. <laughs> he has, and it's taking it away oh, now. Oh, he's come back. No, he's not. He's hung it down. Oh, that's oh, really dark. That's, that's macabre. That's, that's right really out macabre. of... Oh, yeah. He's, he's hanging the stockings, pain. like, for Christmas. Uh, but 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 instead of a stocking, it's it's a, it's a dead fly wrapped in... Um, this may be a podcast extra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't that know. I thought crazy. it was very seasonal. Um, a Christmas Day podcast extra. Yeah. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas <laughs> miracle. You hardly ever I mean, see flies in December. Yes. Um, oh, wow. No, oh, it's taking it back. It's taking okay. it back. No, he's still wrapping. He's doing, a, he's doing a wrapping job. There is a, yes. there is a theme because it's, it it's definitely hanging dangling. like a stocking. He's and it's wrapped like a Christmas present and he's again. back up again. Yeah. Okay. Up the chimney. So is almost. He, it's almost like a Batman interrogation. <laughs> It, it's basically a Batman interrogation. He's oh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> or it's like LA Confidential. Yeah. Another um, <laughs> Christmas, movie. Christmas movie. It's dragging him up and dropping him down and coming down to pick him up again. Okay. I think he, he looks well mummified though. He doesn't actually look like a fly anymore. He just looks like a yeah, big Yeah, he's bundle. a big sack. Yeah. Like a, oh, he's spinning him again for, and yeah, bringing him up. Yeah. But, you know, like in that Return of the King... Uh, that terrifying scene with the big oh, spider. Yes. I yeah. forgot the name of the big spider. Yes, she's also in The Hobbit, isn't she? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think we're done now. Are we done now? I think. Yeah, I think yeah. The, the fly is definitely dead. No, I've always <laughs> wondered, like, what did that big um, spider from Lord of the Rings do? What it, what it, what has that big spider been doing since? <laughs> and now you know. Yeah. <laughs> Having not doing watched the Hobbit book tour. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if this was a At Christmas, <laughs> if this was a Christmas special, Merry Christmas, listeners. We'll be back next week with Aladdin. Um, <laughs> 